How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 17 of X-Lapsed. Today, we're going to be discussing X-Force, and uh, hard to believe, but we're up to volume 6 of X-Force. Yeah, where did my life go? It feels like I've wasted my entire life. We're up to volume 6. Um, now, this is issue 1, of course, uh, January 2020, cover date. The story is called Hunting Ground, written by Ben Percy. Art by Jos- Joshua Kisara, colors by Dean White. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller, Head of X, Hickman. Edits, Lauren Amaro, Chris Robinson, Darren Shan, Jordan D. White, and C.B. Sabolski. Whew. Didn't Crisis on Infinite Earths have, like, one editor? I probably shouldn't say anything, because I know Marvel put, like, four editors on their one-page Harley-Davidson ad strips back in the day. Uh, Cover price, $5. On sale November 6, 2019. Now, uh, before we get into this one, I was a little bit trepidatious going in, um, simply because uh, the the writer involved, uh, I don't know a whole lot about Ben Percy's work, uh, other than the fact that he wrote, he had a run on Teen Titans a few years ago that I very much did not enjoy. Um, I was uh, the writer for uh, a website, Weird Science DC Comics, I would do uh, the Teen Titans reviews for a couple of years, and... They really weren't the best of times to be a Titans fan, but, you know, then again, outside of a very, very small period of time, it really is never a good time to be a Titans fan. But uh, I'm uh, hopeful, or I was hopeful, I've already read it, clearly, but I was hopeful going in that maybe Teen Titans was an aberration and not uh, a complete indictment on how I might feel about his work, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that as we go. Now we open it up, and we're at a meeting of the Court of Owls. Well, okay, probably not the Court of Owls. But we are at a meeting of a secret society. And before they get down to business, they decide there's going to need to be a letting of blood to ensure that there are no mutants among them. Now, if anyone present is determined as having an X gene, they will be dealt with accordingly, probably by being killed. And so, a blade goes around the table while a larger fellow makes sure each member pricks their finger. We finally get to one person in particular who says something about how it took them a whole lot of luck to get here and suggests that it's going to take a whole lot more luck to get out. Now, she stabs the big guy with the blade and starts wrecking masked goofs left and right until the big guy recovers and power bombs her through the table. This is, if the luck comment didn't tip you off, Domino. Before we move on, let's meet the cast of the issue. Beast, Wolverine, Black Tom Cassidy... Kitty Pride, see, even the other books won't call her Kate. Jean Grey, Sage, Professor X, Healer, the Morlock, and Domino. From here, our requisite dub-a-page spread of creds, then back to comics. We are on Krakoa, and Beast is collecting samples from a stream. 
he's suddenly attacked by a monstrous, well, beast. Uh, looks like a mix between a boar, a bear, and a giant dog. Next thing we know, Wolverine leaps in, claws snicked and ready. Beast tells Logan not to kill the animal, and it runs away. This leads to a sort of forced discussion about how they'll always be predators, even in paradise. Wolverine comments that Krakoa might be making everyone feel a little too safe, which, in turn, is making them a little too soft. Now, that's what we in the biz call foreshadowing. From here an info page, the security features of Krakoa. The vital information we glean here is that Black Tom Cassidy is the host in charge, uh, in charge of the uh, security uh, functions, and he's in communication with plant intelligence both on land and at sea to you know, make sure nothing, nothing out of the ordinary happens. Speaking of Black Tom, he's chatting up some plant intelligence and Jean Grey via telepathy as we speak. He's learning that there's a bit of a disturbance, perhaps signaling the arrival of something that doesn't belong here. He rushes to the beach, where we find some rather nervous Krakoans pointing at an approaching boat. They have the understanding that the only way people can come or go to the island is via the gateways, so when they see a ship, they're rightfully nervous. Black Tom informs them that the rules don't apply to... Kitty Pride and the Marauders. See? Black Tom ain't gonna call her Kate either, so I feel a little bit better. Jean tells Tom that there's something on board Kitty's ship. Something that's full of pain. Jean greets Kitty by calling her Kitty, not Kate, and we get the skinny on her latest smuggling mission. You see, they managed to save a bunch of refugees who were victims of chemical weapons. Also, Colossus was there, and now he's back. I don't know if we were supposed to know that Colossus was anywhere. He was in Russia. They found him in Russia. They brought him back to Krakoa. Info page. Xavier's responses to non-treaty nations. We have two forms here, both the official and unofficial. And basically, the unofficial response has to do with the black market and the you know the Hellfire, uh, uh, you know the exchange there with uh, with Kitty in the boat. We shift scenes to the Seoul Incheon International Airport from here, and we see a man with a mole above his left eye casually reading a book. At first, when we saw Colossus on the boat, I thought this might be shifting to like a flashback of Colossus being undercover. Like, with the mole being his entire disguise. Uh, I was hoping that was the case, but it was not. Also at this airport, we see a very severe-looking woman, and as she enters the plane, she is welcomed by a Cheshire Cat-looking pilot who refers to her as friend. So, uh, pretty inconspicuous, no? Back on Krakoa, Xavier checks in with Sage to see if Domino has ever made contact, because it's been over a week since they heard from her. And Sage reports she has not. Xavier asks her to do another sweep and to keep him in the loop if anything were to come up. He then steps into a Krakowan portal. Now this takes him to Sokovia, where he's greeted by some very, very excited dignitaries. They seem extremely keen to sign the Krakowan Treaty and offer the professor some champagne to, sh- to celebrate the occasion. Back to Krakoa. Jean and the Morlock healer are attempting to tend to the refugees' wounds. And Healer is just overwhelmed because these folks have just been brutalized to the point where they don't even know where they're hurting. You know, he can't stop their pain because he doesn't know where the pain is emanating from. Now, Jean gets a read on one and sees some of the atrocities they faced. She also sees Colossus shielding them from a hail of fire. She regretfully informs the Healer that she's not going to be a whole lot of help finding out where these people hurt because, well, they hurt everywhere. Oh, let's check back in with our three new inconspicuous friends on the plane. 
There's some turbulence, and so the oxygen masks drop. The pilot instructs everyone to breathe. However, when they do, they pass out. The only folks left awake are the Molai, the Severe Woman, and the Treasure Cat co-pilot, and a fourth character that we didn't see to this point. They all suit up into outfits that make them look like they're auditioning for a Wetworks relaunch. Now, when the plane is flying over Krakoa, they all jump out, taking a tight formation looking not unlike a comet crashing toward the Earth. Seeing this glowing mass headed toward Krakoa, Black Tom gets a hold of Sage, and she's aware of it. She also reports that her monitors are starting to glitch out a bit. And now, she's also getting reports that Domino's back, which is a bit odd. Now, Tom rushes toward the Krakoan gateway Xavier entered, which, as luck would have it, Xavier is passing back through. Black Tom is here, and he's fretting something fierce. There's some bad hoodoo in the air and, and in the dirt, and he does not trust anybody arriving on the island without going through the Krakoan gateways. Now, Xavier brushes this concern off, and he even, like, sort of kind of threatens Tom's job on the island. He's like, you know, not a lot of people like like you. <laughs> not a lot of people want you in the position you're in. So maybe keep your mouth shut or something. I, it, it felt very, very off-putting. Tom, he, he won't be denied. He tries to press the issue, but Xavier ain't having it. He says in no uncertain terms that all mutants can be trusted. And at that very moment, our Whitworks team has made landfall. And they immediately headshot a mutant mother. Like right off the bat. Bang. Right between the eyes. Suddenly, the beach is bathed in laser targets. Tom tells Xavier to hightail it, and the professor does not need to be told twice. He is like a cartoon character. Just zip. He's gone. Meanwhile, the Whitworks team is just decimating any mutant they can find. We get a couple of cameos here. We have Boom Boom, who... Looks like she reverted back to her uh, late 80s outfits. So that's, uh, that's something. Uh, now, Black Tom goes on the offensive. He starts attacking the baddies with the full wrath and evidently the genitals of Krakoa. Professor X continues to flee, but he worries that these invaders will not stop until they find and kill him. We catch up with Wolverine, who is very nearly taken out. He's saved by Beast, who, from the looks of it, uses his teeth on the severe-looking woman. And this is a forced callback to their forced predator conversation from earlier in the issue. Jean and Black Tom continue taking the fight to the baddies, one of whom gets a little bit chatty, asking why the mutants didn't see this coming, and why would they ever think there wouldn't be any sort of clapback on their Krakoan grandstanding? Well, you know, those of us who are waiting for shoes to drop, we, we might have seen it coming, but nobody asks us. Anywho, one of the invaders has managed to catch up with Xavier, who is standing with his hands up. Then, blam! Wolverine lunges at the gunman, nearly rending him in two. Beast pulls Logan off, reminding him that they need to have at least one of these invaders left alive so they can question them. And we wrap up with a full-page spread. A shattered and smoking Cerebro helmet, blood, and Professor Xavier's limp hand. Well, alrighty then. Uh, let's, let's talk about this, huh? <laughs> this was uh, certainly something. I will say, before we get into it, uh, this was worlds better than anything anything Teen Titans related that Benjamin Percy did, so that I will hand him. Um, now, some of the dialogue was a little eh, but at least the entire book wasn't filled with members of the team being threatened to be kicked off the team or threatening to quit the team. It was like hardly a page of his Teen Titans would go by without that happening. It was not a pleasant read. Now, about this issue... We talk a lot about stakes here, and I, I probably dwell on it too much. 
But here's one case where a death, or an assumed death, is actually pretty striking. I mean, I've asked the question before, you know, what happens if the Cerebro helmet gets destroyed? We do know that there are backups, but what of Professor X? You know, what of Xavier? Now, I don't want to say anything about shoes dropping. <laughs> but because I just don't. Uh, I, I think we're either about to get a real a big reveal here, or we're about to experience just one heck of a cop-out. Um, I don't know if there'll be any middle ground, though I've been wrong before. Now... This is the fourth team book we're looking at here, right? Um, and actually, the entire first wave of Dawn of X books are all team books. And it's it's no fault of this issue in particular, but I feel like for some of them, we're not actually getting teams. You know, uh, the X-Men book, and here in X-Force, who is X-Force? Is there actually an X-Force, or is this just another way to put another book out? And I mean, we are only 20 pages in, so I should probably not ask those questions just yet. But um, I don't know. It, 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 is the people are the people we saw here X Force? But some of them are also X Men. Is there going to be a delineation, or is there going to just be you know whatever whatever mission you're on is that that's the team you're in? I, I suppose we'll find out. But maybe instead of talking about our non-team, we should just talk about the folks we do hang out with here. Uh, Domino does what Domino does. Uh, it's a Kind of interesting that when the Wetworks team came in, Sage mentioned that she got a reading on Domino as well. And I'm assuming that the Wetworks team is mixed up with the Court of Owls from the beginning. And uh, honestly, I was expecting one of the bad guys to be unmasked and revealed as like a mind-wiped Domino or something. Uh, which, I mean, nothing we haven't seen before, but still, it would be something. Uh, Beast and Wolverine. Their scenes were probably the weakest here to me. I felt very one to grow on. Uh, like... You know, like, uh, Percy really wanted to make that predator analogy, and so he worked backwards from it for the whole were-boar-bear-dog thing. <laughs> it's, uh, it felt a little bit forced, a little bit stilted. Um, now, Gene and Healer scene felt kind of the same. Uh, like, he really wanted to drop that they heard everywhere line, and they worked backwards from it. And, I mean, that's not a bad way to write, and I'm not a writer, so I have really no, no place, you know, critiquing someone's method, but... It does lend itself to some rather forced sounding back and forth, in my in my opinion. Uh, you know, that, that might just be me. Now, Black Tom. Old Tom probably stole the show here. Uh, I mean, who saw that coming? I liked him being, like, tied in with the island and paranoid. I thought that was a really good take. And uh, I, I like that, I mean, Black Tom is... Not necessarily an A-lister. Even as a, you know, as a bad guy, he was just a... He was kind of a joke. He was just the guy who hung out with Juggernaut, you know. Um, and it's 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 odd that they're they're framing him as being terribly paranoid and like almost and just dismissed by everybody he <laughs> tries to warn, even though he has a better read on it, on things than anybody else in the book. So I, I like that that sort of dichotomy there. Um, Xavier just dismissing him and and like I said, he's. He threatened to yoink him out of his position. I thought that was a little bit weird. Uh, it it reminds me, I worked in retail for like a week and a half. Um, in between jobs, I, I helped build a hobby supply store, a large hobby supply store here in the U.S. of A. And uh, as part of like filling out my pay, you know, like the pay structure, I, I worked a few days as just a retail associate. 
And uh, I remember showing my manager like empty packages of shoplifted goods. You know, like if you see things things that are just open and just left empty on a shelf, like am I supposed to leave it there? Or am I supposed to bring it to someone's attention? Well, I chose to bring it to the manager's attention, and they'd get mad at me. <laughs> They'd be like, what are you showing this to me for? It's like, well, what do you want me to do with it? It's if it, it feels, you know, of course, in a very, very minor way, kind of how, how old Tom here is trying to be like, hey, you know, there's stuff going on, and he's just being told like, hey, if you keep bringing things to my attention, I'm going to fire you. But uh, other than that, I think Xavier was presented pretty well here. Um, I liked seeing him act as a, you know, sort of like a diplomat and getting some business done. Though those uh, those fellas in uh, in Sokovia, they might have been a little too happy to see him. Um, I mean, call me a cynic, and today's feedback is certainly going to, but uh, I don't trust them. <laughs> now, overall, a fine, fine enough first issue uh, with some great, if not a bit dark, art. I thought the art very much fit the story. Um, I don't think it'll outrank Marauders or New Mutants on my enjoyment scale for this first uh, first outing, but. Uh, I figure it'll probably fall somewhere in the middle of my rankings if I actually remember to do them. But uh, that's X-Force number one. Uh, next episode, we'll be taking a look at Fallen Angels number one. So we'll be wrapping up all, you know, the all six number ones. So until until the wave two kicks in. But uh, alrighty, let's head to a little bit of feedback here, which, as mentioned earlier on, uh, calls your boy out uh, for being a little bit of a curmudgeon or a little bit set in, the, set in my ways or... Know, maybe being a little bit too cynical and uh yeah you know i will own that <laughs> i will completely own that i am definitely you know set in my ways as to what i think an x book ought to look like and uh and it's sometimes hard for me to uh, reconcile that with what's going on today i am trying uh, i am trying here uh you know baby steps <laughs> this is a a brave new world for me and I'm working at it, but let's get to the first piece here from Spreading Chaos Across Comic Land at Chaos Chaos and Comics on Twitter. He says here, I'm listening to your Powers of X podcast number six. Mora's Tenth Life is the 616 universe. And uh, he links me to a CBR article, which I broke my one of my main rules of comics fandom, and I actually clicked on it because I usually will do whatever I can to avoid a CBR article. But I did look at it, and... uh, well, what I got was speculation. Um, this this article came out right after uh, House of X number two, where we had the big reveal that Mora had the uh, the multiple lives, and it's speculation. I'm not sure I would, you know, say that was 100% confirmation, but knowing that CBR and Marvel are pretty tight, uh, I guess we can maybe assume that there's some uh, some weight to it. Spreading Chaos continues by saying, you're going, to, you're going to find much more enjoyment going forward if you recognized he, Jonathan Hickman, launched a new path for mutants and you strap in for the ride. Otherwise, every podcast will be you want, waiting for shoes to fall from the sky. And, I mean, that's kind of the mission statement of X-Lapsed. Um, that's kind of the whole point. I stopped reading the X-Books in the first place back in 2016, 2015, 2016, because... I couldn't strap in for the ride because the ride we were being offered, in my opinion, sucked. Uh, I thought it was absolute trash. The worst X-Men I had tried reading was those uh, blue and gold books. Didn't have the voice I wanted, and so I stopped. If I wasn't open to strapping in, as you put it, uh, I wouldn't be doing this show. Um... I, I waste a lot of things. I waste money, I waste time, I waste brain space, but I don't waste effort. 
I like to think I don't anyway. And uh, over the past two to three weeks, I've probably devoted 50, 60 hours to House of X, Dawn of uh, House of X, Powers of X, Dawn of X. And uh, I don't think I would do that if I wasn't open for the possibility that I was going to be open to the change, right? You know, I, I do understand that this is a new deal here. And if I wasn't on board or willing to be on board, there's no way I would have spent that much time, that much effort doing what I'm doing right now. Um, that being said, if uh, there are things that come up in these stories that I'm confused about or I just don't plain don't like... I'm going to mention it. I mean, that's... Otherwise, again, there's no point. Um, I could give you the just the facts sort of thing and uh, a 10 out of 10 score and devote half the episode to uh, calling Jonathan Hickman a bulletproof genius, but, I mean, there are a lot of places on the internet you can get that. <laughs> that's just not going to be what happens here. I'm going to... This is my journey, as much as it is a recap of, uh, of these books. So... I definitely appreciate you listening and you reaching out, but I can't promise that I'm going to stop, you know, waiting for those shoes to drop. <laughs> that's just, uh, that's just what I do, and uh, that's part of the process and part of the journey for me. Um, he also sent a tweet from Jonathan Hickman about, uh, I did fret a little bit about legacy numbering back in the X-Men number one episode, and Jonathan Hickman sent out a tweet uh, that said, I know it's a lot of copies, but I just emailed Marvel to ask if we can pulp X-Men number one because there's a massive typo on the cover. It says X-Men number one, Legacy 645. It should say X-Men number one, Legacy one. With all due respect to Jonathan Hickman, I will wait a few years and see if Marvel puts out an Uncanny X-Men number 700 when, uh, <laughs> when we get there to, uh, to see whether or not that that you know that that holds a whole lot of water. And plus, I mean, this is Marvel, and we do get near annual reboots and restarts. So, who knows? Who knows? Um, it's hard to say one way or another <laughs> which way that's gonna land. But uh, but thank you, uh, uh, spreading chaos, for your message and reaching out and for listening. I definitely appreciate it. Uh, next piece of uh, mail comes from Damien, who we haven't heard from in a couple of days. And he says, I finally got around to listening to this last episode of Hoxpox, and it's the first time our opinions really differed over the course of this series. We really reacted differently to the final revelations. First, I see no change in established continuity in terms of what happened, only in terms of why they happened. Everything is the same, but they added an extra behind-the-scenes manipulator. I love the fact that they're bending over backwards to incorporate everything, even the stuff most fans would happily ignore, like the Leprechauns of Cassidy Keep, Nightcrawler's Dad's Nonsense, AVX, Deadly Genesis. There is no reboot. There is a backdoor set up to create a reboot later, i.e. when Mora dies, but none as of yet. And, uh... I, I hope that's the case. I really do hope that's the case. Um, but again, I don't know that it's been said. Uh, then again, I haven't read much further, so I am hopeful that that's the way it is. I'm hopeful that everything happened exactly the way we read it. But I also know that I'm not alone in thinking that things have been pulled out. Uh, a lot of the reactions that I've heard, you know, folks are saying this is a full blown reboot, or perhaps the thing, everything we saw did happen, but maybe not in the same Mora life cycle. So it's, I, I feel okay that I'm not alone in that, but I'm also definitely open to the possibility that this is 
you know, as uh, Spreading Chaos said earlier, that this is the 616. Um, I would hope that's the case, but uh, perhaps my cynicism comes from uh, what Damien's about to suggest here. He says, Your reaction reminds me of someone who is unable to create a relationship because their last partner cheated on them. They're always waiting to have their trust abused again. And, uh, yeah, kinda. Um, I know comics aren't, you know, they shouldn't be the, you know, a big deal in, in people's lives. It's a, what is it, an escapist hobby, you know? It shouldn't be something that we invest this much effort and energy into worrying about. But, yeah, I, uh, I am always waiting for the rug to be yanked from under me. Um, I feel like the industry now is, it's about the short term more than ever. Um, it's all about, you know, licking your finger, putting it in the sky and seeing which way the wind's blowing to see, to dictate and inform, uh, what's going to come. Um, I mean, going back to, you know, one of the biggies, um, the new 52, a year before the new 52, we were told there's a brand new direction called brightest day and every, you're going to want to read everything in brightest day because, and I mean, this is me falling for, you know, a sales ploy here pure and simple, but, you know, you get, we were told that this was going to lead somewhere, you know, we were given these promises, maybe not in so many words, but we were told that, you know, this is where you get on, and this is where we're going, and then all of a sudden, the the rug was yanked out from under us. Uh, I, I worry about that kind of thing, because it just happens so damn often these days. We are doing short-term gains here, we're canceling titles, we're relaunching titles, we're sometimes doing two number ones in a single month. It's just a disaster uh, when it comes to uh, uh, having comfort, you know, with uh, with what we have here. And it's funny that, and I've mentioned this before, but uh, one of the one of the biggest criticisms levied at comics fandom is that we're so hesitant to to change. We're so reluctant to change. We're so uninviting of change. But I mean, I've been reading these things for thirty years, and I can't think of a period of time that we weren't in a constant flux where everything wasn't constantly changing. Uh, it's just, you know, weird. And yeah, uh, your, your point is very well taken here. I am always waiting for the rug to be yanked out, or as I put it so often, I'm waiting for shoes to drop that are just going to totally blow my mind here. Uh, back to Damien's message. He says, I was with you in hating the year 1000 stuff, but got something different out of its ending. I was pleased to see Mora's lives as resetting the same universe rather than starting an alternate reality. It means that there's a higher threat level. If she dies, the real world ends. It also means people cannot travel between Mora's lives. That's a very interesting premise I hadn't yet considered. Um, and I do like what you said there about people not traveling between lives, because I feel like that's something that could be used and abused. Um, and, uh, um, you know... We have reality-bending mutants, so I'm not totally convinced that that won't happen. I mean, we do have Proteus. We do have um, we do have all sorts of things that could happen. I mean, we have time travelers, so we could go back and and we can move, you know, Mora's trajectory. So there there is always that back door. But uh, I do like uh, raising the stakes here. Uh, if Mora dies for the last time, does that mean the world ends? Does that mean the six one six is no more? Unfortunately for me, that just raises even more questions and more um, cynicism and more worry. Uh, because 
it's now something I'm not going to be able to unsee, right? Um, and that kind of, that's kind of what gave me my initial um, sort of knee-jerk preconception of Jonathan Hickman's writing. I feel like this is a well he goes to pretty often. Uh, during his Fantastic Four run, we kept hearing about universes being reborn, and this was like right after the uh, the New 52, right? So that was kind of in the air at the time. And I don't know if that was like a meta-commentary on it, or maybe just something to scare the straights, you know, scare people like me who are so set in their ways as to what... Uh, you know, continuity is and the value of continuity. I don't know if that was just like a tip of the hat to us as a, you know, maybe you have something to worry about. But I mean, that's what kept me from fully enjoying the Fantastic Four run because I was worried every time. It's like, okay, we're, we're getting, we're getting closer to something being, you know, a universe being reborn. And is that going to be, is that going to be the end of Marvel as we know it? You know, and then go on to his Avengers run where for the better part of a year, Every issue of Avengers, New Avengers, Secret, all the different Avengerses had a countdown on top of it. A banner counting down how many more months were left until the end. And that, you know, as, as much as it shouldn't, as much as I should have been able to strap in and enjoy the ride, that was always in the back of my head. It's like, well, am I really going to invest in these last seven or eight months if this is all going away? Is this, is this my time to leave? Uh, is this... It just made it difficult. For me to get on board because we have no guarantees and uh, Marvel especially seems a little bit too pleased with themselves when they come to these sort of uh, crossroads where you know maybe we'll restart everything maybe we won't maybe we'll reboot maybe we won't it seems like the all of the news items like at our our vaunted CBR will be more predicated on discussing the outrage rather than the actual organic story of it. So I wonder, like, are we leading up to a time? And, and of course, we, this is all speculation. We have no confirmation of this. It's just me being a worrywart. If Mora dies for the final time, does that mean the following month we get 52 new number ones? Uh, is this, you know, the new take on the Marvel Universe? I mean, it certainly is. As you, as you put it, it is a backdoor, you know. I wonder, and I, I hope not, but you never know. Uh, back to Damien's message, he says, I think they were implying that the phalanx was outside of time and space, so them having knowledge of Mora and her abilities would enable them to more fully absorb the entire universe. Her dying allows the universe to rise up and destroy the phalanx because she can keep trying different strategies to stop them. The librarian was wrong, as evidenced by his getting himself killed by Wolverine. That's, you know, that's a very... Uh, I, I always say that I, I miss the forest for the trees, or however you say that statement here. So I do look for, for things where maybe they're not, and I just miss the things that are plainly in front of my nose. Um, on that note, Damien says, I also think you're overthinking the Mora Diaries. Magneto has been shown as joining the plan on the island, uh, placing it post Uncanny number 150. I expect the loss of Magneto refers to his return to villainy circa X-Men number 1. That's X-Men volume 2 number 1 from 1991. I'm not surprised that he left the plan, as this story says that Mora genetically altered Magneto. And it's true. Uh, we are covering that era of books over on from Claremont to Claremont. So if you have an extra dozen hours or so, those are very, very long episodes <laughs> where we discuss an entire month's worth of X-Men books uh, from X-Men volume 2 number 1 all the way up. Uh... 
But yes, that is a uh, a story beat there that Mora genetically altered Magneto while he was in baby form following that uh, issue of Defenders uh, back probably man I knew I knew the date. I think late 70s early 80s is <laughs> probably as close as I'll be able to to uh, you know dartboard it there but uh yes, I, to to get to the to the point. I am definitely overthinking the diaries, right? Um and it's again, it's another instance of me um, seeing, not seeing what's plainly in front of me. And because uh, I'm, here's the thing. Before I started this project, I heard that there were these huge revelations, right? And I think this is the problem with being, at, you know, quote, ex-lapsed. In my mind, I built them up to being something far greater than they actually were. Which isn't to say that the revelations we did get weren't huge, because they were. The, re- the resurrections were huge. Mora's lives, huge. But I think since we were kind of spoon-fed those, you know, we were told those without any uncertainty. Mora has these multiple lives. They're, they are growing X-Men, you know, replacements in eggs. We were told those things. And uh, it was it was spoon-fed to us. I was expecting something that wasn't spoon-fed to us, right? I was expecting there, as I said many, many times, and as I'm about to be taking a task for here, I was expecting that other shoe to drop. And I was expecting it to be huge, um, because that's what I was led to believe. And, and which sucks for me, because I discounted these other huge revelations as being a little, not underwhelming, but I kept expecting the next one, right? So... Here we are, and I'm expecting, like in the diaries here, I'm looking at it as the full history of the X-Men. You know, of course, there were a couple of redactions, but I'm expecting this to be, okay, well, this is your continuity going forward, which made me, like, wonder, hey, where, where did this story happen? Well, where did this story happen? When did this death happen? When did, uh, when did this person join? When did this person leave? Because I'm basing it entirely on here, because I'm waiting for this other reveal. That's my bad, of course. Uh, that's just my, you know, my broken brain trying to reach for, uh, for whatever, I guess. Um, it's almost like I'm looking for a life raft, and, uh, that's, again, no fault of the story, no fault of the info pages, no fault of anything but my own preconceptions. And uh, definitely, as I mentioned with the previous email, that's something I'm, I'm trying to write myself on. And, uh, and this project is, uh, is part of that. Uh, back to Damien's message. He says, similarly, the death of Mora's Gollum references her dying with a legacy virus. The only real change to that storyline is that she's no longer the first human to get it, although you can understand why she would hide her abilities. And yes, that makes 100% uh, sense. Um, and, I mean, part of me just wishes they said legacy virus, uh, <laughs> because it would give me... It would give me that lightning rod, you know? I know it's there. You know, it would give me that touchstone. Uh, oh, it's like I can place it. Where now I... Without it, I mean, uh, it's, you know, it's just me being weird. But uh, let's move on. Uh, next, uh, Damien discusses footwear and my fascination with it. You talk about expecting another shoe to drop and not getting one. I read this issue expecting them to throw all the shoes up in the air as a setup for Dawn of X, and I got my wish. Hickman has most of a shoe shop swirling around. 
and he mentioned some questions that he that rose from this issue. What is Mora's plan? What are Charles and Magneto going to? Are, are Charles and Magneto going to follow it? We know they've done things Mora disapproves of in the past. What's Apocalypse planning? Does he know that Moore is alive? What'll Mystique do when they don't resurrect Destiny? How do they stop Rogue, an X-Men leader, from resurrecting her mother? What will Orcus do? They still have Sentinels and their space station. What is Sinister doing, and why? What happens if he stops helping them? All of these questions and more had me so excited about Dawn of X. I couldn't wait to find out what happens next. My negative reaction to the Dawn of X is because I desperately wanted to see how and where the shoes dropped, and instead, it felt like everyone was walking around barefoot. And yeah, those are very good points. Those are very good points. And had I not been expecting to... I mean, House of X number six ended, and I had... You know, I mentioned it. I had chills from that, that issue. I loved it. If the, if the series had ended there, I think I'd have received it a lot better. Um, because I just don't think we got enough from Powers of X number six. We did get a little bit, and we did get some questions raised, but, uh, I don't know. I, I think I would have been more satisfied with that and having the, the bits from Powers of X maybe peppered within the first few issues of Dawn of X. Though, I mean, this is just me, you know, you know uh, spitballing here. But all those questions there are very, very important, um... What is Mora's plan? What, how does she define failure? How does she define not failing? You know, what, what is she, what, what's, what's she got in mind? Uh, we do know Charles and Magneto got sinister without her being completely on board, so that's cool. Um, that's definitely, it gives them, even in the face of knowing what's to come, it gives them a measure of autonomy, aut- autonomy, easy for me to say, where, you know, not everything isn't written. You know, everything is not necessarily fated to be because Charles and Magneto still have free will and uh, anything can change, which is a very cool thing. And it really makes it raises those, you know, non life or death stakes a bit for me. Uh, Very good questions. But uh, and definitely they're ones I'm looking forward to see play out, Uh, though. I still don't care about Orcus. (laughs) I really don't. But uh We'll take the uh, we'll take the less interesting with the more interesting, I suppose. Um, back to Damien's message here. He says, "I think I've o- I've overstretched the shoe analogy. I felt like all the major storylines were being paused to be picked up later. I bought X Men up to issue number nine, and there was one issue, issue six, that felt like a genuine contribution to the central premise. I'm not saying there's nothing of value in the other issues. I enjoyed some of the soapy stuff and liked what they did with Brew, but I'm not getting enough of the story to warrant the cost." I can read everything on Marvel Unlimited in six months or pick them up in the clearance box a year or so later. And uh, from that description, I'm unfortunately getting some DC Rebirth vibes from from uh, from that. Uh, similarly, if uh, folks are familiar with DC Rebirth, and I'm assuming a lot of folks are, uh, Jeff Johns, he tossed all the shoes in the air in Rebirth number one. Um, we were getting these glimpses of... There were just so many threads, you know? We, we saw Saturn Girl. We saw some references to the Justice Society. Of course, you know, the Comedian's Button, the multiple Jokers, you know? Uh, unfortunately, those shoes must have been like rocket shoes because damn near none of them ever actually made landfall until they had to kind of, kind of like reverse, <laughs> you know, take them apart and put them back together in different ways and... Uh, Pretty much dismiss a lot of what John's put in there Because he took so damn long to follow up on it um, 
We saw Doomsday Clock, a, a year-long story, take like three years to come out. And by the end of it, DC couldn't stop treading water, so they had to move on and rendered a lot of it out of, uh, you know, out of continuity anyway. So when, that was one of those books that, as soon as it finished, it was already obsolete. <laughs> and that kind of sucks, especially for like the, for a story that is supposed to be like the the, the drink stirring straw, right? But that's kind of what I'm getting from uh, the description here of Dawn of X. Uh, I hope that isn't the point, but I have uh, I have no reason to doubt Damien's uh, words here for sure. Um, yeah, so this might be, oh, you know, a tough road to hoe for a little bit. Um, we are, you know, coming up to X of Swords pretty quick, so maybe we'll get some more answers then. Maybe the revelations from X of Swords will. Uh, Retroactively make some of the events that happened in the earlier issues of Dawn of X Might mean something more than they do on at face value I suppose we'll find out as we go, right? Now back to Damien's message He says, the other issue is the art R.B. Silva, Marty Gracia, and particularly Pepe Raz were spectacular As you said, their work was impeccable The art on Dawn of X was not as good Apart from Rod Reese on New Mutants, who was alternating with other X-Men Gold artists, and Marcus Toe on Excalibur, the art has not really worked. Lionel Yu is a great artist, but for some reason they've put a lot of comedy into X-Men, which he cannot deliver. You'll notice my pick-a-favorite X-Men issue, that was issue 6, was drawn by Mahmoud Azrar. He would be a much better pick. And, uh, you know, I did, I did talk about my appreciation for Rod Reese during the New Mutants episode. It's just... Wonderful, ridiculously amazing stuff there Um, I did flip through Fallen Angels, number one And uh, Simon Kudransky's work is uh, is also very good It's different, different, for sure It's darker, but I like it Um, And I remember really enjoying Mahmoud Azrar on I want to say, like, post-schism Wolverine and the X-Men, maybe If I'm remembering right or maybe it was the second volume of Wolverine and the X-Men. Whichever it was, I'm, I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to seeing his work here again. Uh, I do agree on Lionel. I, I think he's a like super talented artist, but for whatever reason, I'm always a little bit disappointed when I find out he's coming onto a book I'm reading. <laughs> I can't explain why. Because I think the dude's fantastic. I just, I don't know, I just don't want to don't read it. I don't know. Um... Back to Damien, he says, Generally speaking, I feel like Dawn of X is an attempt to fleece money out of me. Hoxpox was great, whereas Docs is okay. If I was grading on a curve, I would be more generous. There are too many times there are many times in the last thirty years where okay would have been a huge improvement. But having just read Hoxpox, I know they can do better. And yeah, uh your point once again is very well taken here. Um Going back to Jason Colby's email from episode 14, he said uh, something along the lines of, you know, Hickman had us prepped for the extraordinary. So basically, anything less would feel like it was falling short or underachieving. Um, so, yeah, it's it's hard. It's it's a, it's a bit of a you know, precipitous drop <laughs> from one to the other. They're, they're totally different. Um, and, and I'll go more into that uh, toward the end here. But uh, I could definitely see... Where, where uh, Dio, Dawn of X would be a little bit underwhelming in comparison. Um, and as for fleecing us, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this is just you know part and parcel current year comics, unfortunately. And uh, you know, to uh, 
go back to when I was still on the fringes, right? I, uh, I was just starting to become X-curious again. This was when I heard that there was going to be a new X-Men number one. Um, I didn't have any interest in House of X, Powers of X, because I, I thought it was just going to be a, another weird excuse to stop publishing X-Men books for a few months. I mean, we were just coming off of uh, Age of X-Men, which was another just weird time where they, they stopped publishing the main X-Men books and they just put these other miniseries out. I think I was under the assumption that House of X and Powers of X was going to be more of the same. Um, and, uh, you know, just putting the X-Men in their own universe because you know, yada yada movie rights, yada yada whatever. And I, I just dismissed it. As that, I didn't know that this was the the new jumping on point at the at that time. So, I told myself I would buy X Men number one, and uh, from there I would just buy the X Men main story. You know, I would just buy that and not worry about anything else until you know I became a little bit less ignorant on the new uh, Dawn of X uh, era. And then I saw that there were six books, and they were double shipping for a few months, and you know, um, I, at my core, I am an all-or-nothing sort of comic fan, uh, and it, that, that's that's not a good thing. <laughs> it's definitely not a good thing, but uh, yeah, it felt definitely like we were being taken to the cleaners. Um, whereas they could have put out a few solid books, instead we got a half dozen that were coming out twice a month for a few months. Yeah, it felt like they, they knew they had us, and especially... You know, going back to your earlier point, we had all these unanswered questions from House of X that I'm sure, or House of X, Powers of X, that I'm sure a lot of folks were interested in seeing followed up on. And uh, we were kind of a captive audience at that point. You know, we've already invested, oh boy, what was it? Uh, like 70 bucks on House of X, Powers of X? Have 70 bucks American? So, I mean, it would be silly not to follow up, right? So... Yeah, I could definitely see being fle- feeling fleeced, for sure. Uh, back to uh, wrapping up Damien's email. He says, uh, Talking of doing better, I need to once again big you up. I'm loving your coverage. I've got a busy couple of weeks coming up, so I know I'm going to fall behind, but I'm really looking forward to hearing what comes next, and maybe you'll convince me that I'm wrong about Dawn of X. Well, thank you so much, Damien. I, and I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed hearing from you uh, and picking your brain throughout this journey. Uh, it's been most appreciated. Um, some of the funnest parts of putting this together has been the feedback, and I've always enjoyed uh, your messages. They've been, uh, they've been wonderful. And I do hope that you will pop in from time to time during uh, the Dawn of X here. And, I mean, this goes out to everybody. I totally understand that Dawn of X is like a different animal than... Uh, the opening salvo of House of X, Powers of X, and um, as such, there's going to be there's probably going to be far less urgency in following along, at least in real time. And I'm sure listenership will take a dip, uh, much like you know, much like the sales of the comics themselves, right? A uh, number one is always going to sell more than a number you know thirteen, uh, unless something major happens. Um, so I'm expecting there to be. A bit less urgency, a bit less engagement going forward here. Um, I always try to talk myself up as building a resource. Uh, that's one of the things that keeps me sane-ish. So <laughs> these will be here uh, for you whenever you uh, whenever you do find the time. And I hope you do. Uh, and I hope you do continue to share your wonderful point of view here because I've really, really appreciated it. And I feel like I've learned so much from your point of view because... 
as mentioned, you know, we do view these things through our own prisms, and some of us, uh, i.e. me, miss the things that are plainly in front of my nose, uh, trying to look at what symbols may or may not be there. So thank you, Damien. Uh, thank you, Spreading Chaos, for reaching out. Thank you, everyone, for reaching out and following along. Uh, it really does this soul good. <laughs> but I think that's where I'll let you all go today. I'll let you get on with your day here. Uh, next episode, we will be looking at Fallen Angels. We'll be wrapping up the uh, the number ones, the Dawn of X number ones for the first wave. We'll be wrapping those up, and maybe if I remember, we'll uh, we'll rank them. You know, not that that's a huge selling point for uh, listening, but uh, we'll see which ones I like best and which one I like the least. So we'll go from there. Um, you know, if anybody would like to reach out, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You could also check in at the blog over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. There's also the Xlapsed subdomain at xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com, which I link to in the show notes, where you can find all the shows in order. So if you did miss some, if, you, if you're just discovering the show and you want to go back to the beginning, that might be an easy way to do it. Uh, the full audio archives you could find at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that includes all of the X-Lapsed. Um, also, Moratory Mondays, where me and Chris Bailey go through every single issue of Strike Force Moratory. We have we have very very few left, and that does, as the name implies, come out every Monday. Um, there's also the full archives for uh, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, as well as Weird Comics History. All the gatherums are there. Chris's on Infinite Earths is there. Uh, a lot of audio there. Uh, tens of thousands of hours of audio is there. So uh, if uh, you like what I do, you may want to look into some of that stuff as well. If you don't, well, then you're, you're probably not listening at this point anyway. But uh, <laughs> I thank you nonetheless. So one last huge thank you to everyone for hanging out. And uh, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and welcome to episode 23 of X-Lapsed, and uh, this is a late-night recording of X-Lapsed. Uh, today I spent 
some time with family at a uh, birthday party for my nephew and uh as a result, wound up spending a lot of time bouncing around a trampoline with my niece and nephew, which is very out of character for me. And uh, and so uh, your boy's a little punchy tonight. <laughs> He's aching a little bit, but uh, that will not stop us from discussing the book we've uh, you know we've come here to discuss, and that is of course X Force number two. Let's hop right into it. This issue had a January 2020 cover date. The title is The Sword of Damocles, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Joshua Cassara. Colors by Dean White, lead is VC's Joe Caramagna. Design Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman. Edits Robinson White Sobolski, cover price $3.99 American, on sale November 27th, 2019. Now we pick up, if you remember last issue of X-Force, ended with uh, Professor X, well, shot in the head and dead. Uh, So we pick up seemingly right after where we left off there. We have Magneto lifting Xavier's Cerebro helmet, lamenting the fact that he wasn't able to save his old friend. Then we get this, like, full, you know, full scene shot of Xavier's body laid out in a field where he was hunted down. Uh, He's surrounded by many, many mutants, a real who's who, including some folks that I don't think we've seen yet in the post-Hox-Pox landscape here. See, strong guy, so, uh... I guess he isn't still Satan, or the king of hell, or whatever the hell he was. Uh, Dakin, uh, the son of Wolverine. Uh, Dr. Nemesis, uh, which reminds me, um, is danger still a thing? Uh, you know, that, that sentient danger room character out of that lazy and delayed uh, Whedon run? Is that, is that still a thing that exists? Um, Shatterstar, Feral, Firestar, friggin' Mamomax, the elephant-faced mutant, he's here too. I mean, it's insane how many characters they're cramming onto this page. Uh, it's worth noting, Betsy, Gambit, and Jubilee are here out of Excalibur, but we don't see Rogue. Also, Bishop's here. Though, in the most recent issue of Marauders that we discussed a couple episodes back, he does fill the team in on Xavier's passing, so it might stand to reason that he is here for uh, for this scene. Really cool page. Um, so, many, uh, so many characters I haven't seen in a long time right here. I really, really enjoyed it. So, let's... Meet our cast. We've got Magneto, Jean Grey, Beast, Cecilia Reyes, Reyes um, Black Tom Cassidy, Sage, Wolverine, and Quentin Quire, Kid Omega. From here we get two pages of credits we'll never get back, and then comics. Magneto and Jean chat about how important it is to get everything back to normal. You know, bringing Xavier back, getting Cerebro back online, all that stuff. Jean thinks she can handle it. But Magneto says, hey, you know, don't think, do. You know, the success is the only real option here. He then uses his powers to manipulate the shattered Cerebro helmet into the shape of a sword. So we keep getting a sword imagery here. Uh, he tells Jean that there's a clock ticking. They gotta move fast. And so next thing we know, Jean is chatting up Beast. Hank talks about how crazy things have been and how strange it is for Xavier to, like, not require things like a dedicated security detail. You know, he's, like, out and about in the world. He's wheeling and dealing in Krakoa's best interests, and he does it alone. We saw it last issue. He went to, uh, I don't know, somewhere. (laughs) Somewhere in in Russia, I think. But he was by himself. So it is odd that Xavier isn't going with a, like, a mutant secret service of sorts. He is a head of state now, right? Hank mentions the Sword of Damocles, which uh, not only evokes the name of this issue, but it's a little bit another uh, sword reference, and uh, we keep getting those, and I guess we will continue to. Now, the pair head into the Cerebro Cradle number one, and uh, that's where one of the backup helmets are. 
Gene states that only one Cerebro can be live at a time, and it's going to be up to Henry to get this one back up and running. He's not so sure he can do it, but Gene tells him he's got to have faith. And uh, I think I talked about this last issue here. Uh, we're, we're not going to be completely subtle. We're taking the less subtle approach here. Um, the logical scientist in Hank having to re- rely on his faith... And I feel like we're going to be doing this sort of, like, belief gymnastics a lot here. Um, And I think I said this about Gambit uh, back in Excalibur number 2, how he didn't believe in magic, and he thought Betsy was, like, crazy for seeing invisible people. I mean, would anybody in, in the Marvel Universe only rely on logic? I mean, they've got gods, devils, they've met them. They've met gods and devils. They've gone to heaven. They've gone to hell. There's just too much extraordinary stuff in this universe to raise these kind of quandaries and and make it seem authentic, right? I mean, they've seen so much that that defies logic. And here we are with the with the scientist having to be having to, you know, push down to get some faith. Very unsubtle and it feels feels kind of forced. Now, from here, we get an info page breaking down the assassination of Charles Xavier from a security point of view. It's very corporate in structure here. It's sort of like a lessons learned or best practices document. Uh, If anybody out there is familiar with, you know, like a post-event corporate memo, like something happens at the office or in a warehouse or something, and it's like, okay, well, this is what we learned from it, and this is what we need to do in the future to prevent it. I mean, it's fine for what it is. Uh, We do learn here that there were 33 mutant deaths in the raid. Not that such a thing really matters anymore, but it's there if we want it. We head over to the Healing Gardens, where Cecilia Reyes is examining the bodies of the Wetworks crew from the last issue. She's joined by Sage and Black Tom, the latter of whom can't stop blaming himself for everything that's gone down. Is it really his fault, though? I mean, he did try to warn everybody, including Xavier. They just weren't listening, and Xavier threatened to fire him. Now, Reyes reveals that these characters had extra bones and accessories grafted into their bodies, to which Sage makes a reference that they're being outfitted sort of like the old uh, X-Men villains, the Reavers, which uh, is kind of a neat twist. Wolverine enters the room and asks the Morlock healer how many of these bad guys are still alive, and it's just one. Logan stops himself from killing that last one and overhears something quite interesting. Now, you remember how last issue, Sage got readings that Domino had returned as the, uh, as the comet of Wetworks characters were, were coming down from that plane. Well, there was a reason for that. And it's, uh, it's that these Wetworks geeks had some of Domino's skin grafted onto their own. Wolverine's, uh, you know, he's heard enough. He decides it's time for him to go hunting. And he asks that Sage have Gene come in and try to read that last living Wetworks character's mind. Now, before we get to that, let's follow Wolverine. Let's see what he does here. He does a little Google search, and it brings him to a facility in South Korea. Here, he runs into Quentin Quire, who's uh, also hot on the trail of whatever it is that Wolverine's looking for. Now, apparently, we do learn something about Kid Omega. It's that he smells like a mixture of body spray, soda, and crotch, which is uh, some uh, wonderful smell visual in it. I gotta say, though, he does look the part. I feel bad for his bed. Um, Now, Quentin reveals that he's here to take out the guys who took Xavier out, and he begins clickety-clacking in on a nearby console to get down to business. Back on Krakoa and back in the cradle, Hank wrestles some more with his faith and prayers and stuff, which, as mentioned, feels really forced. Uh, I mean, I get what they're going for here, but... You know, rather than making Hank seem, like, skeptically conflicted... 
all they're doing is making him into like a guy I'd never want to be stuck in an elevator with. It's just really forced and annoying. We hop back to South Korea, where Wolverine and Kid Omega make their way to another compound. Well, it looks like a printing press, and we'll soon find out that it sort of kind of is. Now, after KOing the guard detail, they saunter on in. What they find is, uh, yeah, this place is a printing press, but uh, rather than printing books, brochures, and junk mail, they're printing assassins, from nervous system to skin. Back to the healing gardens, Sage has called for Jean, and they keep examining. They're finding that many of these corpses' body parts have been made into, like, multitaskers. You know, it's as though they were assassins created in a lab. Or, you know, a weird South Korean printing press. Uh, Jean finally gets down to business of mind-reading, and, well, she gets herself a head full. A head full of what, you might be asking? Well, she doesn't know, and neither do I. It does waste an entire page, though, so there's that. From here, we hop into an info page, and perhaps this is some of what Jean saw? Uh, This is titled The Strange Case of Phineas Hook. Now, Phineas is a fellow that Domino had been tracking for Xavier, so maybe it's this dude? Uh, It's worth noting here that this fella, Phineas, he spent his evenings hanging out on anti-mutant chat rooms on the dark web. (laughs) Seriously? I mean... Are there chat rooms of any kind out there anymore? I mean, an anti-mutant chat room? Why why does it have to be on the dark web? I mean... (laughs) Are we just are we just saying words that sound cool? Um, or, I don't know. <laughs> so that's what we learned about Phineas for now. Back to the press. Logan and Quire keep looking for murdery merchant at the murdery merchandise when they find themselves under attack by basically globs of human-shaped muscle. Quire attempts to go on the offensive. However, he realizes that his powers aren't working. Wolverine's like, hey. Too bad, but you can still kick, punch, and bite. So <laughs> do what you can do. And uh, and Wolverine continues to hack away at the meat. Now Quentin breaks away from the fight, and we wrap up with him stood before a giant canister, and inside it is Domino. And from the looks of it, great big swaths of her skin have been forcibly removed. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, we will wrap up the Dawn of X number twos with Fallen Angels. But how about we talk about what we just read here? Let's let's take a look. I'm not hating the story. I'm really uh, I'm actually liking the story. But I gotta say, um, and this is a complaint I had about Ben Percy when he was on Teen Titans. Here, he has this like very forced, or maybe it is just an unsubtle way of writing. Um, I think I mentioned it last time we discussed X Force. It feels like he writes backwards from like a punchline or like a point. That he feels is like poignant I mean it's not the worst thing in the world But it kind of telegraphs a lot of the dialogue Making it feel Rather inauthentic You know I don't believe it When they say it right It just feels It feels like it's manufactured to make a point It's kind of like You know when you come up to come up with like a comeback For a joke that or you, a comeback To an insult that no one's ever levied at you So you think it's the most, it's, it's, you know, the George Costanza jerk store thing from Seinfeld. You know, you have this awesome punchline or this awesome comeback, and you have it in your back pocket just waiting to use it, and you, you just, maybe you just can't sometimes. Maybe it's just not an authentic conversation that's going to go in that direction, and that's, that's kind of how I feel about Percy's uh, dialogue sometimes. Um... <laughs> 
I mean, we have what we have here with the beast, right? He's trying to balance logic and faith, which, I mean, that's a struggle as old as time, right? Or at least as old as, you know, college freshmen coming home at Thanksgiving with a whole new set of ideals, you know? I feel like in the real world, sure, have that quandary, have that internal debate, have that conflict. But we're in a world that's predicated on the concept of resurrection, right? This entire Hox Pox Docs landscape is based on resurrection. And uh, even the most skeptical among us might be a bit more open to displaying faith in that sort of a, in that sort of a environment, I'd feel. I don't know, maybe Beast is struggling with that as well, but I mean, he's seen it firsthand. I don't know, Just it just doesn't feel authentic to me. It feels like we're writing backwards. Um, let's talk about the bad guys here. The Wetworks team being a sort, being sort of revealed as a more assassin-y version of the Reavers, I like it. I think that's cool. Uh, it you know takes something from the X-Men's past, and it makes it a whole lot creepier and nastier. You know, I think that's a really cool thing to do. It... It brings them into the now. And, uh, you know, I think that that fits the tone of a book like this. You know, these organic reavers might be the best foils to open with. And, uh, you know, I'm guessing by the fact that they had Domino that these reavers are tied in somehow with that Court of Owls group we saw last issue, which which is fine. No problems with that. I think that's a, that's a, fine, uh, a, fine, a fine set of bad guys for our opening uh, salvo here for, for X-Force. Uh, Quentin Quire. Oof. Now, this is a character I should absolutely hate, but I can't. <laughs> I like him a lot. Uh, I don't know how, because, I mean, looking at him, it's like, oh, man, I'm going to hate this guy, but I, I just enjoy so many of the scenes with him in it. And, you know, I will say they definitely softened him up quite a bit from the Morrison days, right? Uh, I mean, the whole thing with him getting like, I think he got like a Hitler haircut in like his first appearance, you know, like his, his whole, his whole look was based on something pretty bad. (laughs) And he was just a real, a real a-hole. He still is. Um, And uh, I mean, but he's more fun now. He's like fun in like a, like a pain in the ass sort of way. And I, I've always felt that he and Wolverine play with each other really well. I think they're a good pair. And I think they're I think they're a lot of fun together. Other than that, though, there's really not a whole lot more to like analyze here. I think that's something we're going to discover as we go deeper into these books. I mean, these aren't really building the way House of X and Powers of X did. You know, these are these are a different animal. So there's going to be a less to you know parse out and less to discuss. But uh, we're we're still going to do it. We're still going to put in the work. Um, that said, I did I, I did enjoy this. I liked it. I'm very very happy we didn't see Xavier just walking around already. <laughs> I like that they're you know playing a bit with the tension. Um, like we've said before, you know they they're changing the stakes. It's no longer purely about life and death. It's about everything else. And uh, I'd say it's a fine enough issue. And uh, I'm definitely looking forward to what's to come. So a net positive with X Force number two. And, uh, of course, next episode is Fallen Angels number two, which uh, wasn't everybody's favorite <laughs> last time out. And uh, as evidence of that, let's hop into the mailbag here, because I uh, got a letter from Damien discussing Fallen Angels number one. He says, I loved Marauders and New Mutants. X-Men was okay. Excalibur was disappointing. I didn't like X-Force, but I hated Fallen Angels. 
And I think we're in a similar boat here, as far as our preferences for those first issues. I, I can't say that I outright hated Fallen Angels, but, you know, that might be my... I've got something of a current year comics cushion. <laughs> you know, it's a knee-jerk reaction where I'm afraid that I am rating current year stuff on a an unfair metric, you know? Um... I've mentioned before, I used to be a reviewer of current year comics at a site that they, where they used a, you know, a X out of 10 grading system, you know, where if you go to Comic Book Roundup, you know, if you want to get in with the publishers, everything's a 10 out of 10. Uh, this was an honest, or this is, and it's still, there's, it's weird comics, weird science DC comics. They're still uh, alive and kicking. They're still doing great things, but uh, they, their thing is that, uh, they weren't swayed in that sort of a way. It was honest reviews, honest scores. Um, that said, I would cushion my scores. You know, to cushion any potential biases I might have had against, you know, things like the nuts and bolts of current year comics, right? Things like let's look at a, let's look at Dawn of X here. Info pages, a double page spread for our credits. You know, that stuff that in my in my reviewer mind, I would cut points out for. Even though it doesn't hurt anything, I just don't like that it's taking up pages. Um, because I'm used to comics being told a certain way. So, in order to combat that, or to counter that, I would grade on a curve. You know, I try to reconcile that, you know, in my peanut brain, that something like, this comic is not for me, doesn't exactly, doesn't exactly equal this is a bad comic, right? Something that isn't for me can still be a good comic. Something that is for me can still be a bad comic, right? There's definitely overlap from time to time. So maybe I've been doing this so long that the way that I grade comics has somehow bled into the way I describe them? I don't know. I mean, that said, Fallen Angels definitely wasn't for me. Um, like I say... Most times, I, I'm, I'm, in case it isn't completely obvious here, I kind of fence it. <laughs> you know, I have things I don't like, I have things I like, but I try to, I don't know, I try to reconcile that with, you know, somebody might have picked up Fallen Angels number one and thought it was the best thing in the world, you know. Um, it wasn't for me, but at the same time, I can't say that I necessarily hated it, but again, that might just be my fence-sittery uh, cushion kicking in. Uh, back to Damien. He says, I'm quite surprised by how positive you were about this. Maybe maybe go knowing it's a mini helps. I bought it thinking it was the start of an ongoing. I do not get Quanan. Her whole creation retcon happened in an era where I had given up on the X-Men, and I mainly think of her as a punchline. She was created to explain how Betsy changed. After her first appearance, everyone wrote in to point out it contradicted the explanation of the original stories. So they retconned her laughable and yeah Quanon or revanche or whatever the hell they were calling it back then was definitely a solution in search of a problem back in the long ago um you know i, I joke that like it was almost as though lobdell and friends saw people complaining that the xbooks were like so hard to navigate and so hard to get into and decided to just like screw it we'll up the ante here <laughs> you know uh having whichever cubert on art made things even more confusing. 
Uh, since the purple-haired ladies, Psylocke and Quanon, they looked almost exactly alike. Outside of, like, which volumizing shampoo they used. Uh, you know, uh, Psylocke did not have any, like, purely Asian um, features, and Quanon didn't have any purely British features. They, they just looked like Hubert women, you know? Um, I mean, I still remember the big reveal, you know, because, like, there was the cover. It was, like, X-Men, like, 21, 22, volume 2, and, like, it's the X-Men all freaked out, and there's, like, a hooded character before them pulling their man, pulling their hood off, but you don't see who's what the face looks like. And, you know, you look at that, and you're, like, hyped. You know, who is this going to be? So we see her on hood, and I just thought it was, like, okay, Psylocke has a clone, because facially, she was damn near identical. The only immediate difference you saw is that, that she, like, might have gotten a perm, you know, because her hair was bigger. It was uh, definitely a flat reveal to someone like me. Um, back to Damien. He says, This book felt like one of those awful 90s books where everything is dark and sexy and there's lots of cyberpunkish nonsense. Even the layouts lean into that. Close-up eye, close-up lips, boob shot, butt shot. Everyone has secret children or secret siblings and aren't ninjas cool. And yes, your point is very well taken. I feel like, you know, it's almost like like this could have been released today as a lost image comic from the mid-90s. You know, something they found in the drawer with like a 1995 date on it. And I don't think anyone would have batted an eye because you're spot on there. Uh, back to Damien, he says, I really didn't like this. Uh, by the way, the 80s Fallen Angel series has a special place in my heart. It came out at just the right time for me, and I enjoyed the combination of ridiculousness and high melodrama. When I heard there was going to be a Fallen Angel series, I genuinely hoped they were going to resurrect Don the Mutant Lobster. <laughs> and it's funny, um, over the last little while, I've been hearing a lot of fond memories of that 80s Fallen Angels. If, you, if anyone listens to Moratory Mondays, also on this channel, uh, me and Chris Bailey, we make fun of it a lot. As being boring, because uh, like every month for a little while, the bullpen bulletins page uh, would would like rave about it, and we're like, oh, this boring series, and and folks have actually reached out to express their fondness for the run. Um, so maybe, you know, I haven't talked about the the books club in a while. Maybe uh, maybe Fallen Angels might have to get a revisit um, somewhere down the line. I swear, though, I don't think I actually ever made it all the way through. I know I've tried a few times, but I don't think I actually read all, what was it, eight issues, maybe ten issues? I don't think I've actually ever made it to the end. Um, that said, I did just find my 80s run because I filed the uh, first Dawn of X Fallen Angels issue right behind it. So I know where it is. <laughs> so if it ever comes down to uh, talking about it, uh, I'm open to it. Now back to Damien. He says, thanks again for the podcast. It was great to hear more feedback. I didn't know about the 10 years since Fantastic Four timescale mentioned by Al Sedano. I wonder if that's intact. I would place Franklin in his teens, which would imply a longer continuity. He is a reality warper, though, so maybe he made himself older with his powers. And yes, that, that was news to me as well. You know, I knew there was some sort of formula Marvel used to slide the scale. I just really wasn't sure how hard and fast it was, right? Maybe the movie universe has something to do with it? Uh, or maybe it's just something we're not supposed to think about? I don't know. Um, you know, not to go on a, 
on a new 52 rant again, but uh, when that launched, they tried to adhere to a, like a five-year scale, you know, where when we met these characters, only five years had passed since, you know, the start of the, uh, like, Superman's arrival or something. Now, naturally, they kicked this off with Batman showing off his four Robins, which, I mean, four Robins in five years? Come on, that's kind of a mess, isn't it? Oh, boy. Well, thank you so much for the um, email, Damien. It's always a pleasure. Next, we have a message from Jason. This is a spoiler-free X of Tens, or <laughs> X of Swords, or Tens of Swords uh, bit here from him. Uh, he says, I'm told that a bunch of the stuff being mentioned in X of Tens he wants to get that trending hashtag ECKS of Tens, and I think uh, we should try to do that for sure. He says... I think uh, a bunch of the stuff being mentioned in X of Tens is out of the Alan Moore Captain UK run in the 80s. The only Alan Moore I've read is Watchmen and Swamp Thing, so I'm pretty lost. And I tell you what, I've said this before, I think I've said this almost every episode (laughs) the past few times here, the more Captain Britain stuff is wild. Um, You you might never look at the character the same way again. I always kind of discounted Captain Britain as kind of an also-ran, you know, it's like, oh, well, we have Captain America, they've got Captain Britain. But this run, oof, it's a goodie. Um, I can't say enough good stuff about it. Um, I replied to this message by saying if I uh, had to choose two Alan Moore works to take with me on a desert island, which would be a wildly specific sort of endeavor, right, Um, I would pick his Captain Britain and his Miracle Man. Those are the two, my two favorite Alan Moore works. Um, Captain Britain is just, it's an amazing run. Um, I never, uh, I never cared for Captain Britain. I always thought he was just, I thought he was a lame character. I didn't think he was that great. But uh, when, I, when I read that, uh, that Moore run, um, oof. it's good stuff. Um, definitely highly recommended. Um, and uh, that might be a, might be a series that I that I do some talking about pretty soon because that's uh I'm looking for an excuse to reread it so <laughs> you never know uh, but thank you Jason uh, uh, thank you for keeping um, the X of Tens talk spoiler free for uh, for those of us who aren't there and uh, probably won't get there for a little while but uh, I definitely appreciate the information here. Um, because if we if we do get some of that Captain Britain stuff covered in the interim here, maybe we'll be uh you know we'll be we'll we'll get the extra credit on X of Swords, or Ten of Swords, or Tens of X's, or X's of Tens. But uh, thank you so much, Jason. Uh, now finally, we have a, a letter from our friend Al Sedano. He says, first of all, nice to see you're continuing the show post Hoxpox. It gives me a reading order for whenever I get to that point. I hope, <laughs> I hope the reading order that I'm doing is the right one. Um, I've mentioned it before. Uh, the the lists online are conflicting and contradictory, and sometimes they cluster, you know, fan, uh, 4X caliber issues in a row. And I don't know. Right now, I'm going with the uh, the basically the by the by the, the sale date, um, the order that they list in the back of these early Dawn of X books where they kind of give you an order that you should be reading them. I'm just following that for now. I think that goes away pretty soon, at which time we'll have to reevaluate and see uh, see how we do it. 
Um, I do think when we get to things like uh, X-Men Fantastic Four, I'll probably just do those all in one clump. Um, Empire X-Men, we'll probably do those in one clump. Um, but uh, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll play. We'll play it by year. I think you know, there's a free comic book day uh, story that we'll be covering. There's those giant sizes that we'll be getting to. So there's a lot of stuff that uh, doesn't that may not exactly fall into place that we'll just have to uh, use our judgment on. Um, back to Ali says, okay, so my thoughts after reading House of X number two and listening to episode three. Now, of course, House of X number two was our first red-colored uh, issue where uh, something big went down. We found out the uncanny lives of Mora. Now, Al says, I want to know what cured what cured Mora magically when she was 13. Was it all just due to her mutant power, or is there more to it? Well, we haven't heard anything else. Um, I'm going to assume it was her, it was just, maybe her illness was her mutant power manifesting. Maybe it really wasn't an illness. I don't, I don't know. Uh, we've seen, you know, we've seen mutants react differently to having their uh, powers manifest, so maybe it was that. Um, he, he continues, I'm not as bothered by the text pages as you, but since I'm reading it in a hardcover, maybe you're right about it working better there. And I, I, I stand by that. I feel like if you read House of X, Powers of X as a collected edition, the info pages and the quote pages and the mostly blank pages probably, they probably give you a little bit of a breather and just signify that, you know, you're at a chapter ending or you're just getting information. When you're reading a 22-page or 20-page or an 18-page comic that you're paying $5 for and it feels like every third page is just text, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a pain. Al continues, In Mora's third life, when she's killed by the Brotherhood, you missed Avalanche. But he was hiding in the shadows and doesn't speak, so it's understandable. Yeah, I didn't mention him. Yeah, I, I must have missed him. Um, Al continues, Since you mentioned Avengers vs. X-Men, I wanted to say Cyclops was right. Hell yeah, he was. <laughs> I remember uh, when Avengers vs. X-Men number one came out. Um... I went to my local shop, and he had two great big, like, like bowls that you would, like, put chips in, you know, for, a, like, a, if you had, like, a, a party, you know? He had these two big bowls, and there were pins, buttons. And one would say, I'm with the Avengers, and one would say, I'm with the X-Men. And I swear, I was the only one to pick up an I'm with the X-Men button. You know, because he said you can only take one. You had to pick a side. You can't have them both. You got to pick a side. Everyone went with the Avengers. I was the only one to pick up an X-Men one. Um, so, yeah, I'm very, very, uh, I'm very passionate that Cyclops was, in fact, right. Uh, Al continues, the death of Mora 4. I'm wondering if that was supposed to be the Days of Future Past timeline. It just has that feel to it. And, yes, flipping through it right now, um... It does have, you know, uh, a Sentinel taking out Wolverine very much like the cover of, uh, of Uncanny X-Men 142. So, yes, that very well could be uh, Days of Future Past right there. Uh, Mora 9, the way she and Apocalypse are holding hands and fighting to the death together. Was there a romance between them? I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of Apocalypse being in a relationship. And, uh, well, you'll find out more about that as you continue uh, through uh, Hawk's Pox there. Um, 
Back to Al, he says, I can understand your issue with the thought that they have that they have a way to retcon this all built into the story. But let me offer this perspective. Marvel likes to do stories that change things. Superior Spider-Man, New X-Men, Peter Parker outing his identity. They also like to retcon these things and go back to the easy for me to say, the traditional status quo. Out of the examples I mentioned, Superior Spider-Man did it the best, most likely because Dan Slott had it set up from the beginning, if I remember correctly. The other two were messy, and were done either after the creator left or by duress. If Marvel is just going to retcon this anyway, I'd rather have it be planned. And yes, I I can definitely understand that. And uh, Superior Spider-Man, I think that is probably Dan Slott's finest work. I think that was... That's one of those things like Quentin Quire. I should have hated it. You know, I should have just despised it. But I'd be lying if I said it wasn't the top of my stack every week it came out. I absolutely ate it up. Too bad everything that came after kind of sucked. But uh, Superior Spider-Man, that whole run was a blast. Uh, Really, really enjoyed it. Um, But uh, I I definitely... I I can agree with that perspective, Al, about... uh, you know, Marvel does what Marvel does, and if they're going to retcon, you might as well plant the seed so it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Um, the only thing that I would say is that, you know, I, I always worry about, you know, getting the toothpaste back in the tube, you know, getting the genies back in the bottles here. And when you when we explore stories like that handle things like resurrection, things like... These high concepts, I mean, that's the big buzzword around Hickman, high concept. When you change that, when you do retcon, when you do go to a different status quo, when you revert, we already saw this, right? I mean, we already saw this timeline. It's not. This isn't a what-if, this isn't a Elseworlds. This is a story that's being told that we're supposed to be following as the, the now, the real the 616 um, it's hard for me to reconcile that I'm just I'm just a guy who hates retcons so <laughs> I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna be a kind of a tough sell on such a thing here I, I like I mean let's look at Peter Parker outing his identity and uh, this is me totally going off on a tangent here but uh Peter Parker unmasks right this isn't a hoax this isn't an imaginary story this isn't a dream we see how the world reacts, right? We see how Jonah reacts to finding out Peter Parker is Spider-Man. We see how New York reacts to knowing who Spider-Man is. We see how the world reacts. This is real. For the time that it was in continuity, it was real. That said, we stuff that genie back in the bottle, but it doesn't, it doesn't all fit anymore, right? Because now we know what would happen if... I think that's the biggest thing about so many of these stories is that we we talk about stakes a lot on this show, right? I mean, what are the stakes to Parker's identity? What are the stakes to Peter Parker dying? What are the stakes to the X-Men dying? We want to see what comes next. We want to see how people react. With something like outing an identity, we already know how the, the world reacts. With the X-Men starting up at Krakoa, we know how the world reacts now. So it'll never be a, a question anymore. And I, I realize that this is kind of a wobbly analogy, but uh, it's just it feels like the stakes are just really, really screwy. And I, I have a feeling 
that Dawn of X, this Hickman era of X-Men, will probably end with Mora dying. And Lord only knows where we'll wind up. <laughs> you know, X-Men Volume 6, Number 1, or Uncanny X-Men Volume 14, Number 1, whatever we get. Um, But, you know, your point is very well taken. If, if that's the way Marvel's going to do business, at least it'll make sense this way. You know, they, they do have that back door, and uh, I'm guessing that before long they will use it. Uh, back to Al's message. It says, I do like my digital comics, but in this instance, I'm very happy I picked up the hardcover. The Mora time, Timelines graph is much easier to navigate this way. And yes, I, I would imagine this would be kind of a bear to read on a, uh, on a tablet. Um, the, Mora, the Mora pages especially, where it does work a lot better in the, uh, the hard format. Um, finally, yes, I'm in agreement with you that the Tenth Life of Mora is basically the one we've been reading all these years. So, yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's what everybody's been been alluding to. Um, I was a little bit wobbly on it toward the end there <laughs> because I wasn't sure how everything fit uh, until people just told me, you know, hey, everything fit, just deal with it, and I'm like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> That's that Um, Al wraps up I think that's everything On to the next issue And thank you so much For reaching out Al I do hope you continue to As we work our way through Um, I'm definitely uh, interested In hearing all your thoughts And uh, I hope you continue as well Into the Dawn of X landscape here And I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts I'd love to pick your brain On uh, on the new status quo So thank you And uh, thanks, everybody, as always. Uh, If you'd like to reach out and uh, engage with the program, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and all that good stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com or xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. If you want to chat us up on Facebook, just search for 90s X-Men on Facebook. It's a group, and it's it's a group called From Claremont to Claremont, which is a show that is still... I'm still working on <laughs> It's just a big show um, And it takes a long, long time To uh, put all those pieces together But it is it is still a, a thing that exists It's still a thing that is uh, On the forefront of my mind um, What else? Uh, yes, the audio archives ChrisandReggie.podbean.com You can find all of the programs at, Of the Chris and Reggie channel Which is uh, X-Lapse, Moratory Mondays Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill Weird Comics History Real Comics History The Gatherums Young Animal Sandman What else? Chris is on Infinite Earths uh, All those shows A lot, a lot of shows uh, Thousands of hours of audio if, uh, if you have thousands of hours to kill But I think that's where I'll put a pin in it today uh, Just one more giant thank you to everyone listening And uh, till next time I will talk to you again real soon See ya
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to a late evening edition of X-Lapse. This is episode 29, and uh, I feel like kind of an idiot. Um, <laughs> I've been sitting here with intermittent internet all day, and uh, worried that I wouldn't be able to record this until I realized that, uh, hey, I don't need to be online to record this. I can record this just on uh, Audacity. I don't need to be connected to any internet. So, uh, wasted a lot of the day waiting for the internet to come back up, uh, Hopefully it'll stay up while I'm trying to uh, upload this uh, to the uh, channel, but uh, I guess we'll see. Now this is episode 29, and we're going to be discussing X-Force, volume 6, number 3, February 2020, cover date, and uh, we should hop right on in. The story is called The Skeleton Key, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Joshua Kassara, colors by Guru EFX, letters VCs Joe Caramagna, uh, designs Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman, edits Robinson White Sabolski, $4 on sale December 11th, 2019. Now we open with a very purpley flashback showing us how those uh, Court of Owls doctors nipped and tucked from Domino's skin in order to build their assassin army. They see uh, Domino as an evolutionary skeleton key, hence the title of this very issue. Now, we see canisters full of folks, with a particular focus on a pair in the forefront. One looks like the uh, the young X-Men, either ink or tattoo, I don't remember what his name was, it was something like that. And the other one kind of looks like Colossus. Not sure if they're actually those characters, but I figured it's worth a mention nonetheless. From here, we jump to our roll call, and we got a lot of characters here. We got Wolverine, Kid Omega, Domino, Beast, Jean Grey, Sage, the Morlock Healer, Black Tom Cassidy, Magneto, and Professor X. So, uh, spoiler alert, I guess. Uh, uh, from here we get the credits, yada, yada, yada. We resume in the present, and we're at that South Korean printing press where we left Wolverine and Kid Omega. Now we rejoin them, and they're stood before Domino's canister, and, uh, you know, they're pretty ticked off. Uh, Wolverine ultimately cuts Domino free, but then one of those giants from Attack on Titan busts into the room to take the heroes out. Before we get more of that, though, we do shift scenes back to Krakoa. Jean Grey, Beast, and a newly online Cerebro helmet are walking toward the hatchery, having a very Percy-esque forced conversation. Beast wonders aloud a bit about the value of life and death anymore, uh, perhaps being the voice of a certain portion of the readership. Jean changes the subject and starts talking about her old family vacations, where the greys would stop at cemeteries and her folks would lounge in the shade of tall tombstones and she and her sister would hunt down the oldest graves in the le- in the yard. What a... what? that's some fun family time, isn't it? That's a little morbid. Uh, from here, we get a comment from Jean, wherein she says, quote, I've died more times than anyone can keep track of. Can we retire this already? I get that it's cute and it gets a cheap pop, but at this point, I swear Jean might have died the least out of any of the heavy hitters of the Marvel Universe. Uh, I mean, 
she's only really died twice, right? And died is in quotes because the first time she was just in a stasis cocoon at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. So, I mean, if we're still counting that, I guess we could say three times if we're counting the mother mold mission from Hoxpox. But still, I mean, I'm thinking since the time she's actually been gone at the end of the Morrison run till the time she came back, most of the Marvel pantheon of heroes have died more times than she ever died. So can we can we maybe stop this little uh, little narrative here? Anyway, they arrive at the hatchery, and uh, then a certain bald gentleman is just about to be born. We hop back to Seoul, and Wolverine picks up Domino as he and Quentin flee from that giant mass of meat. Logan notices a collar around Domino's neck, and get this, it's of the power-dampening variety. Seems we uh, can't go an episode without some sort of mutant power dampening device, right? Uh, Wolverine slices it off, which returns all their mutant powers to Flowin. Quentin manifests a big ol' psionic rocket launcher and blasts the beast in the belly. We jump from here to the healing gardens on Krakoa. Sage and the Morlock healer are still trying to monitor that final Wetworks character, and it's not looking all that promising. He's alive, but at this point he's in no position to talk. Kind of begs the question, didn't Gene already read his mind last issue? Eh. Oh, well, whatever the case, Sage and the healer leave the body in the gardens. Once they're gone, however, a hand covers the wetworks guy's mouth and nose, suffocating him to death. Now, this hand looks a little bit plant-like to me, uh, so perhaps this is Black Tom, or maybe it's the island itself. We get an info page titled The Fifth Assassin, and it's pretty dull. From here, we jump to Magneto, who's giving, who's preparing to give some sort of press conference in Washington Square Park, New York. Now, Black Tom is freaking out, like he seems to do quite a bit. Uh, the folks want to know if the rumors are true. They want to know if Xavier's really dead. They want to know if the Cerebro helmet is really kaput. How did this news even get out? Um, did, like, Kitty blab it to a reporter while drunk? Maybe Quentin Quire tweeted it? I don't know. But it seems like this is a... Information I probably shouldn't be getting off the island. So, Magneto is just about to address the public about the recent happenings at Krakoa when he's interrupted by the man himself. Charles Francis Xavier is alive and well. From here we jump to an info page, because of course we do. This one's about the Cerebro Sword. Now, you remember last issue, Magneto shaped the shrapnel of the busted Cerebro helmet into a sword. So, uh, yeah, that's basically what this is all about. So how many swords are we up to at this point? I mean, we got the Cerebro sword, right? Betsy wields a sword as Captain Britain. Quanon has her katana. Magic has her soul sword. I feel like I might be missing a couple or six, but uh, we're getting a lot of swords, ain't we? Uh, we jump back to Soul. Quentin Quire is using his powers to help Domino regain the functions of her depleted and dissected body parts. She comes around and is able to begin speaking lucidly once more. She reveals that she remembers a man. A man with a peacock tattoo. Just then, there's a big explosion. What the explosion was, I couldn't tell you, since this trio will be back on Krakoa in the very next panel. And so, we return to the point, which I'm assuming is on Krakoa. It's underneath a great rushing waterfall here. We join Xavier as he addresses Wolverine, Choir, Domino, Magneto, Beast, Jean, and Sage. They chat a bit about their new enemy before Xavier officially christens them as his X-Force. We get a, you know, a cute, to me, my X-Force line. 
The scene segues back to our Court of Owls, where they're talking about Xavier defunding various shadow agencies around the world. And turns out that members from all these agencies, Weapon X included, have come together in this strange, you know, eyes-wide-shut-looking group here. And they are called Zeno, or Zeno. X-E-N-O. However you want to pronounce that. That's what they are, and that's the issue. Next episode, we'll be wrapping up the number threes with everybody's favorite, Fallen Angels. But uh, first, let's talk about what we just read here. Got a lot of bebopping around this issue which uh, thankfully limited us to only one very forced bit of dialogue. Though, that scene was a doozy. Um, I tell you, I grew very tired of the all-new X-Men. You remember the uh, the Silver Ages that were brought to the present after Avengers vs. X-Men? But I swear right now I'd be down with swapping our beast for theirs. Um, I think we'll keep our gene, though. I think that's a, a good a good trade. Um, now, the conversation here felt predicated on getting to Jean joking about how often she died, which I feel kind of misses the point, and it also reinforces a narrative that doesn't quite hold as much water this side of the year 2000. I mean, sure, joke about Jean dying and coming back, well, back when comic book deaths meant a little bit more, right? But now, which character in the Marvel Universe has di- hasn't died at least twice? Right, and and even in the time Jean's been away since two thousand four or whatever, how many, how many characters in the Marvel universe, how many main movers and shakers in the Marvel universe haven't died? But I guess you got to get them retweets and retumbles or whatever. So you you play to the cheap seats here with these uh, these uh, you know way played out narratives. So that led to us getting Xavier back. So Xavier's back already, uh, but at least they didn't do it in the very next issue. That said, it still feels a little too soon, doesn't it? I mean, this uh, this is quick, <laughs> you know? I guess this is just the sort of thing we're in for right now. Um, so, honestly, I guess I can't be too mad at it for being what it's supposed to be. Though, now I have this, uh, this feeling. I can't shake the feeling that... Um, we just went through this death of Xavier bit just so Magneto could forge that Cerebro sword. I'm, I'd am i actually bet money on it, <laughs> though I suppose I could be mistaken. It just feels like a very roundabout way for us to get a Cerebro sword for an upcoming swords-themed event. Uh, now, the scene with Domino being rescued was fine. Uh, the meaty monster was just kind of there. Uh, as mentioned during the synopsis, he looked, or it, looked a lot like something out of Attack on Titan, so... Uh, at this point, we've got a Titan and an Evangelion unit in the Hox Pox Docs world, so I guess they're, uh, I guess they have their inspiration. Um, now, Domino, when she was rescued, was wearing a mutant power dampening collar. Can we please be a little bit more creative here? Um, this is starting to feel like if every villain in the DC universe started carrying around a chunk of kryptonite. It's not clever. It doesn't really feel like that much of a handicap for our heroes, and it's not upping the stakes in any real way. It's just played out. We've had two episodes in a row where we're discussing power dampening, and it feels like it feels like every other issue, somebody's powers are being dampened. It's let's let's be a little bit more creative. Um, overall, though, uh, for the most part, despite my nitpicking, I had a pretty good time with this issue. Um, our newly revealed, or at least newly named, threat of Zeno or Zeno. I'll, I'll withhold judgment for now. Uh, I'm 
to be honest, I'm bracing to be bored, but I'm hopeful that I might be pleasantly surprised here. Uh, really, uh, you know, we bebopped around so much this issue that just isn't, there really isn't a whole heck of a lot to, uh, to discuss. Um, I mean, that, that Wetworks character was snuffed out. We don't know who did it. Do we care? <laughs> I don't know that we do. Um... Because maybe it's Black Tom getting a little bit of retribution. Maybe it's Krakoa itself purging, you know, a non-mutant from the island. But it doesn't matter, does it? It really doesn't seem like it matters. Uh, Zeno, uh, they seem to be preparing to make their move anyway. So it doesn't matter whether or not Professor X and the gang know who they are. Because they're going to make their presence felt. That's basically how we ended the issue with them proclaiming that they're going to do what they have to do. Uh, the art here, let's talk about the art. Uh, first, the cover of this issue was is awesome. I love the cover of this issue. It's Jean Grey wearing um, the Cerebro helmet and with a whole bunch of swirly stuff around her. It looks really, really cool. I like it a lot. I've been looking forward to reading this issue just for the cover, really. I thought it was a, a very cool and very striking cover. Um, the stuff, you know, between the covers, though, I mean, this is the uh, darker art. Um very focused on things like the body horror and kind of goriness with the meaty bodies and stuff. Um, it does the job, but um, I, I shouldn't come at it away from pages wondering if I'm actually seeing the right character. Like, early on in this issue, I made a comment that one of the characters in a canister looked like Colossus. I shouldn't have to guess, right? Uh, that that should be pretty clear whether it is or not, or if it's just another Xeno character that uh, we aren't supposed to recognize. Um, you know me, though. I, I search for things where they're not, <laughs> so that could be that could be it right there. Why uh, why I saw what I thought I saw, but uh, it gets the job done. Um, for the most part, it's very very good. Uh, but uh, and if you in a few scenes the. Uh, Maybe the intention doesn't quite uh, doesn't quite translate through the art. Um, speaking of you know dialogue and, and words, uh, we had that scene between Beast and Jean early on, which felt very very forced. Um, I would like to not read an issue of X Force where I'm where I have to make comment on that, but uh, I guess that's just where we are for now. Um, We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Other than that, I'd say that this is probably a weaker issue of X-Force, but a strong issue among the other number threes. So uh, <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Um, kind of damning with faint praise there, I suppose. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I got to say about X-Force number three. Uh, we do have a very brief mailbag segment that we will wrap up with. This is uh, from our friend Damien regarding Marauders number three. Now he says, a great issue of Marauders. Jerry Duggan is doing a great, a good job of showing how bad Shaw is. I joked in my feedback on Marauders number two that Shaw is a loser, but he actually gets creepier and creepier as this series continues. And yeah, you know, um, I really appreciated this issue because of its focus on Shaw. And uh, because, you know, if you just read issue two and then we just continued with the story without really a spotlight or a focus on Sebastian... You know, we would just think he was kind of a neutered loser. Um, but here he's being depicted as a, 
you know, trying to at least be one move ahead of his opponent at all times, right? He's trying to find allies. He's, you know, positioning them in, in places of power. He's poisoning their minds against their common enemies. It's all very good. It's all very good. And I look forward to a more uh, sinister side of Sebastian Shaw in upcoming issues here. Um, I hear that... I've, I've heard from Damien a few times, and I've heard from other people that Shaw... He's a bad man in these issues, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing that play out. Now, speaking of Sebastian, I'm not, I'm still not clear on his involvement, if any, in Shinobi cramming his own head into it, hand in his, into his face, right? But I'm guessing that'll probably eventually be revisited or resolved one way or another as we move along here. Um, we did see that Sebastian was there in the wake of Shinobi jamming his fingers into his face, but... Uh, I don't know. We don't know. I, I, well, we don't know. I mean, other people know. I don't know <laughs> where that story even happened. So um, I'll leave that for something I'll learn later, or if anybody wants to chime in with exactly what went down, that'd be cool, too. Uh, back to Damien. He says, As for Shinobi, I remember reading his first appearance in X-Factor and being intrigued by him, but feeling like he was underused in the Upstart storyline, which felt more focused on Fenris and Fitzroy. It didn't help that the Upstart's first storyline killed the Hellions, who I loved. Yeah, Shinobi was uh, kind of jobbed out, right? He was jobbed out of the Upstarts pretty much straight away. He was made to look like just like a, a privileged, snobby kid who didn't have what it took to actually play the game. You know, he was there because of who his father was and nothing more. Um, uh, Trevor Fitzroy, he took the crown, uh, you know, as it were. With his very first appearance um, After, as Damien mentions here Taking down the Hellions uh, He also thought that he'd taken out Emma Frost and Jean Grey That issue too This is back in Uncanny X-Men number 282 281, 282 <laughs> I think 281 um, Of course, uh, just about none of these deaths actually stuck Not even Beef You know, poor Beef didn't. <laughs> his death didn't even stick um, And you know in the age of, like, mutant resurrectability, now might be, like, the best time, better better time than ever to bring back the upstarts, right? Uh, because deaths don't really matter so much and you can keep racking up points. I mean, imagine the amount of points you'd get for killing Wolverine, like, a half dozen times, right? Uh, this could be a really interesting story in the making or just something from my, you know, addled brain. Um, you know, if only Bill Jemis and his weirdo epic imprint were still around. Maybe we'd get the answers to these questions. But, uh, yeah, that's a... Uh, thank you so much for the uh, email, uh, Damien. And uh, I think this is this might actually be the shortest episode yet. Uh, just not a whole lot to say. A third part of what I'm assuming is going to be a six-part arc. <laughs> so, it is a uh, middle chapter, so... I don't know. Um, I'm finding the further we go, the more um, the the prophecies that I've been told are, are starting to make sense here. I was told by just about everyone who engaged early on during Hoxpox that uh, not to expect the, the quality um, and the exceptional nature of those books to, uh, to carry on through the ongoings. And uh, I didn't want to believe it. Uh, but uh, here we are, you know. Um, we're going to keep at it, though, of course. We're going to try to get un as we work through this and uh, just hope for the best. 
Unfortunately, our next issue is Fallen Angels number three, so (laughs) hopes are not high. But, you know, that's when you're the most surprised. You know, when you have no hopes for something or when you have low expectations for something, you really can only go up, right? So fingers crossed that Fallen Angels number three is... uh, Wows me in a way that the first two issues did not um, I'm not holding my breath But we'll uh, we'll be optimistic Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me You can do so at Ace Comics on Twitter Or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com You can find all the show notes and stuff At chrisisoninfiniteearths.com Or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com You can find us on Facebook at 90sxmen And you can find the complete audio archives Over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com uh, we're getting uh, we're getting out early today. We're we're getting out early for good behavior today. So uh, I want to thank you all for hanging out and reaching out and uh, sharing your time with me. Uh, it really really means a lot. So put a button on it right there. And until next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 34 of X-Lapsed. It is a uh, most deadly episode uh, we're going to find out as we work our way through this issue of X-Force. Today, it's X-Force Volume 6, Number 4. Had a February 2020 cover date. The story is called Blood Economics, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Joshua Kassara. Easy for me to say. Colors, Dean White and Guru EFX. Let is VC's Joe Caramagna, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, our edits are Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price $3.99, went on sale December 18th, 2019. Now we start with a fairly unpleasant looking cover. Um, it kind of looks like something you might see on either volume of X-Men Unlimited. Really doesn't match anything that's going on in the books right now. It just feels very... I don't know. I don't like it. (laughs) Now we open up, perhaps to our largest ever roll call page yet. Let's see if we can get through these names here. With uh, I doubt I'll be able to do it in one breath, so we'll just take our time. 
Wolverine, Kid Omega, Domino, Professor X, Marvel Girl, Beast, Sage, The Black King, Sebastian Shaw, Storm, Apocalypse, still not listed as A, Mr. Sinister, Mystique, Magneto, Exodus, Nightcrawler, and Forge. Yowza. Okay, double page spread of creds, and then in we go. Now we open at an Xavier Pharmaceuticals, that's like pharmaceuticals but with an X in the middle of it, a distribution site off the eastern seaboard, uh, kind of looks like a bubble on stilts, because it's, you know, kind of in the water. We see some, I'm assuming, lowly Xeno grunts bobbing in the surf below. They climb up and, uh, well, they kill them, they, they, they start killing some guards, they start taking out guards, uh, and the guards are comprised of multiple man dupes. Now, while all this is going on, we're reading some narration from Professor Xavier, and he's he's busy talking about how happy he is that they were attacked back in X-Force number one because uh, now their strengths have been reinforced or something. I don't know. I guess maybe maybe we're looking on the bright side of a... Uh, we're trying to make the best of a bad situation. I don't know. Now, this takes us to a meeting of the Quiet Council, and it looks like the gang's all here minus the Red Queen. Xavier then interjects this weird bit of conversation. He starts discussing Hercules and his twelve labors. Uh, but first, he fills us in on some lesser-known Herc history, which uh, kind of makes me think Ben Percy just learned a lot of this stuff himself and was in a big rush to share it, because, uh... Ugh, howdy, this feels, this feels rather shoehorned. Um, you ever see that episode of Friends where Joey buys, like, one volume of the encyclopedia? And so he spends, like, the rest of the episode trying to steer any and all discussion to the subjects that start with, like, the letter V. Like, he wants to talk about Vesuvius and vacuums and stuff because he had, he only bought the V volume of the encyclopedia and he wanted to sound smart. This kind of feels like that. Um, anyway, the gist of it is, Hercules was strong but stupid. He needed his sister Athena to bail him out time and again. From here, we join Beast, Marvel Girl, and Old Lady Jubilee as they check in on that Pharmax DC. And, uh... Okay, Sage really looks like an older Jubilee here. They have basically the same outfit. Bright yellow jacket, gaudy pink shades. I gotta figure I'm not the only one to have seen this page and wonder when Jubilee had the time to grow her hair out, right? I mean, this is... It's very, very, uh... Very similar. Uh, anywho. Jean telepathically projects what one of the surviving Jamie dupes saw, and, uh... Well, it's pretty hard to, s to see exactly what we're supposed to be seeing here. Um, all I can tell you is it looks violent, but uh, really doesn't tell us much of the story. I think we might all assume that uh, an event that left a bunch of dupes dead was violent, so this is kind of redundant. Uh, it's worth noting here that Hank does note that the, the attackers used a different caliber of gun than the Wetworks team did when they took out Xavier. Not sure this proves anything, or perhaps... Maybe that's just a tidbit for us readers who already have an idea that Xeno is comprised of, like, bits and pieces of several different disparate secret agencies. Or maybe they're a different group altogether. I mean, it's just masked, masked dudes here, so it's really, really difficult to think all that hard about it. Um, Jean, she thinks out loud about how difficult it was for Jaime to reabsorb the surviving dupe. Jaime... Man, it's a good thing we got three editors on this book, isn't it? Hmm. From here, Beast and Sage waste most of a page arguing about how the attackers arrived at this distribution center. Tessa is now under the assumption that these baddies were aiming at uh, Krakoan finances and data, which I suppose stands to reason. 
From here, we get an info page that lists all of the Xavier Shell corporations. We've got Xavier Pharmaceuticals, we got Gifted Mind Technologies, Uncanny Valley Farms, Summers News and Media, Evolution Energy, X Mark Spot Mining, Cerebral Films, Phoenix Law Offices, Salem Center Auctions and Real Estate, Blackbird Motors, Wolverine Waste Management, oh god, uh, His Dream Philanthropic Foundation. Uh, they've really got, uh, they really got try hard toward the end there, didn't they? Um, also, Xavier created the digital currency known as Xcoin. How five years ago? Huh. Okay, back to the Quiet Council. Sebastian Shore wonders why they're all, you know, all on edge right now. He says, you know, after all, Xavier was killed, and now he's back. Also, Xavier's been robbed, but now he's a billionaire. He doesn't seem to understand the stakes here, and, uh, here I am agreeing with him. And you all just wait till the very end of this issue, because, uh, oof. Oh, boy. From here, we get some very rehearsed-sounding dialogue from many of the council members. Sassy Sinister seems to be the only one with his head on straight. He suggests that they, you know, just take out their attackers. Gene says no way, and then projects a scarily posed assortment of their new foes. I mean, you gotta see this panel here. It's You have, like, a row of these masked guys here, in, in like, in formation, and, like, the boss, you know, the big court of owls-looking guy... He's, like, behind them, looming over them like a giant, you know, like he's, like, posed for this picture. It looks like something that should be a comic book cover and not something that Jean Grey should be projecting telepathically because it looks like, uh, it doesn't look like anything you would actually see in real life. It's, uh, really, I don't know, I probably shouldn't be thinking about it. Oh, it's also worth noting that Doug Ramsey is present for this meeting, so, uh, I guess the New Mutants make it back okay from Shi'ar space? Spoiler alert? I don't know. Uh, Exodus asks what they might do about this, you know, this group here, Xeno. Xavier suggests, hey, we'll use X-Force. Then, the conversation shifts to suggesting that X-Force is something akin to, like, a Krakoan CIA. And, uh, hey, that's another safe target for our heroes and writers to pass off commentary about in it. We had Big Pharma last episode, Big Corporations, and now the CIA today. So we're really taking down some... (laughs) Big-time sacred cows here, huh? Uh, Mystique especially has a problem with this idea, but Jean tries to bring it all back around to Xavier's earlier lecture on Hercules and Athena. It's uh, it's a uh, observation I've made before when we've read X-Force. It uh, feels like they're writing these in reverse. You know, you, you have that point you want to make, but you have to get there. So I think we really wanted to get to this point, and so we had to dial back five or six pages to get this weird... Pointless and out-of-nowhere Hercules-Athena thing From here, we follow Wolverine, Quentin Quire, and Domino Down to the Armory to meet up with Forge And Forge is being written like Kind of like that black market weaponeer uh, Who, like, he can get you weapons on the DL If you're in a buddy cop movie You know, he's like that kind of eccentric guy Who has, like, really bad jokes Because when they show up here He tells them if they're looking for stuffed animals They're in the wrong place Really, Forge? Come on From here He and Wolverine also have this, like, weird Playful, contentious relationship thing going on It feels so dumb They arm wrestle, like, in midair Out of nowhere, they just arm wrestle They, like, do a little test of strength Wolverine pops his claws They both laugh It's ridiculous Uh, Once this foreplay That's Forge's words, not mine Is over 
Ford shows off his new organic weaponry. It's kind of uh, made of the flesh of Krakoa. It's organic, plant, bio, whatever. And uh, this organic weaponry can be a blaster, a blade. It could be pretty much anything you want. Um, he refers to it as a Swiss Army mitten. And while it's really, really gross, it's a pretty cool idea. I like it a lot. Um, now, before our heroes leave, Wolverine notices a big old tub of molten adamantium. Forge says it's there for the times they have to put Wolverine back together, you know, vis-a-vis a resurrection. Wolverine asks if Forge might be able to make him something with it, but doesn't get the chance to elaborate. And uh, one dollar American says it's a sword. I'm, I'm betting it's a sword, because that's what we get in these books. From here, an info page. And it's a page out of Forge's day planner. And, uh, you know, uh, the comedian's at the mound, and he throws the joke... Swing and a miss. Not funny, not even cute. From here, we shift over to the point, where Beast and Tessa have deduced that the baddies will next target an Xavier facility outside of San Francisco. And this one also looks like a gross bubble, just not on stilts, because it's not in the middle of the water. Uh, sure as sugar, the masked men bust in and attack. Beast note that the people in this place are human associates of Xavier, and so, if they die, it's a one-way trip. And I wonder, has Xavier ever tried to back up a non-mutant? If not, why not? If he's working with and entrusting, you know, some humans to run his his interests and his labs and his research, wouldn't it stand to reason that he'd try to back them up? I don't know, maybe we'll get a, a, a full explanation on that sort of thing later, reasons why he can't, who knows. Now, let's hop to San Francisco, and these masked goons are laying waste to the facility. They're shooting the ever-loving hell out of the scientists and engineers. And so Wolverine, Domino, and Kid Omega rush toward the Krakoan gateway that will deliver them there. But the bad guys have attached some explosives to the other end of it. Now, here's the thing, and this is our go-home. Wolverine and Kid Omega are in the process of passing through the gateway when the whole thing goes boom. So, out the other end, all that made it through was the top half of Wolverine and Quentin Quire's head. Domino was a step behind, so she just winds up not teleporting at all. And we're out of here. Next stop, Fallen Angels. Okay. Okay. Seriously? We have four issues of X-Force under our belt here. And two of them end with major character deaths? I mean, I get that, you know, I get changing the stakes. That's been like a huge, major theme of many of our discussions up to this point on X-Lapsed. But four issues in, and it already feels like we're in self-parody mode here, because this feels like a joke. This is like something out of, like, Punisher or Deadpool or insert extreme character here destroys the Marvel Universe levels of bad comedy. Is, is this really what we're in for with this book? Are, are we just looking to think of new and creative ways to kill every single character, knowing that they're going to be right back on the front lines an issue or two later? This... I... I hated this ending. Um, we're just killing the concept of the cliffhanger by instilling this feeling that nothing really matters. You know? I, and we're talking about shifting the stakes here, but... This... We have Wolverine cut in half. Um, we already saw the pool of adamantium. We know that he can be rebuilt. We, we've seen we've seen Wolverine rebuilt before. Um, this just feels pointless. Um, 
it feels like a way to extend a story that doesn't need to be extended because this is going to lead to more parts. Yeah. Okay, let, let's let's leave that where it's at and we'll just move on from here. All right, plenty more forced Percy dialogue here. Uh, lots of points being made at the expense of sounding like, you know, actual humans speaking. I mean, we're getting pages and pages of dialogue that clearly no one ever bothered to actually say out loud. Otherwise, they would just have to know how stilted and forced it sounded. Uh, this is getting to, you know, fans of DC Comics might, or current year DC Comics, might know a fellow by the name of Steve Orlando. His dialogue is all sorts of inorganic. Um, feels very, very forced. Feels very unhuman. Um, it's like Siri speak. You know, it's not something a human being would ever say. It's just uh, exposition as dialogue, and it doesn't work. Now, our threat being like just a mass cabal of geeks. I guess this is just a situation we run into when all of our best villains suddenly side with the heroes. We get like nameless, faceless, pointless bad guys. I mean, I've joked that this feels sort of like a Wildstorm comic, and I mean, it really, really does. Uh, we've had our Wetworks crew, we've got a group of suited, masked bad guys to worry about. I mean, what, what is this? Divine Right? DV8? Stormwatch? Come on, this is just so. Ugh. I, I, like, all we need to happen now is for the leader, this Court of Owls guy from Xeno, like, removing his mask to reveal, like, waist-length, shockingly white hair and a scar over one of his eyes. And it's like, okay, we've gone full Wildstorm. And I will continue not to give a crap. Uh, Forge. Um, I don't think I've ever seen him written quite so dopely. Uh, he and Wolverine playing, like, that old bros routine. I'll say it with me, it felt extremely forced. I mean, they've got, like, pet names for one another, like, he's calling them Wolverine, like, Short Stack? Uh, they're, they're playfully arm-wrestling for no reason. Like, what is this, like, two varsity football players at the high school reunion? Eh, not, not, not good. I will say, though, Forge's Krakoan Swiss Army Mitten, really cool idea. Though, I mean, with something like that, what more of a point does Forge himself serve? If this mitt can do and be anything, why the hell do we still need Forge? Did he just, like, work himself out of a job? I've been in that position before, and it's not fun. Uh, the Tub of Adamantium. That begs a few questions. First of all, why haven't they laced every Resurrectee's bows with bones with the stuff? I mean, if they've got it, and lots of it, why not? Why can't Cyclops have, a, have an Adamantium skeleton? It's not like they're affecting his... You know, his biology, it's still the Cyclops' body. I mean, Wolverine's body wasn't born with adamantium. They're adding that after the fact. So why not just give it to everybody when they're bringing them back? Just a way to make them sturdier. Um, I do appreciate that we do get some clarification on how a resurrected Logan will still have his inorganic adamantium-laced bones. But I feel like it begs more question than it answers. Um, and also, uh, he's totally asking Forge to, uh, you know, well, forge a so an adamantium sword, right? I mean, that's got to be where we're headed with this. We, we're getting swords, like, every third issue, so I, it's almost got to be. Uh, let's talk about the yacht. Uh, it felt a bit scratchier than usual. Uh, I mean, considering this is usually a darker book, but this time it was a little, like, it was like Scratch City. Uh, some pages felt like we were looking at inked and colored sketches or pencil roughs. Really not the best look. 
overall, I'd say this is kind of a dud. I'm completely over Dead Mutants, and I'm losing interest in the direction of this book. I want to be optimistic. I want to like this. There's a lot of characters in this book I like, but this ain't doing it. This ain't doing it for me. Um, this is uh, very samey. Uh, we talked about, you know, the the curse of part four of six, and I mean, this isn't exactly that because we are getting some things happening here, but it's just the same things, you know. It's we got to deal with more mutant deaths now, and I'm over it. <laughs> I'm over it. But uh, that's pretty much all I got to say about X Force number four. But before we go, we do have a couple of pieces of mail to look at here. Now we'll start with Damien. This is talking about Marauders number four. Damien says, first off, I have to thank you for linking to my stuff. And this is regarding uh, his Millennium posts and his Millennium episode. Uh, He continues, I'm always keen to get more eyes and ears on my stuff. Of course, you also linked your Millennium stuff, so I'll now read loads more behind-the-scenes information. You really have managed to gather together a lot of resources. I'm very jealous. And uh, thank you, but uh, never never be jealous of obsessive compulsivity. (laughs) I'm a sick man. Um, I... Yeah, I'm a sick fellow when it comes to putting together a lot of stuff. Uh, Now, I'm always looking for ways to share folks' work. Um, I only wish my voice carried a little bit further so I could be more of a help in that regard. And, uh, you know, there was a time where it did carry a little bit further, but just not so much anymore. I'm I'm trying, though. (laughs) I just, uh, I, I think everybody's just tired of me. Um, and I'm also, like, notoriously bad at promoting my own work, so anytime I see, like, a semi-organic opportunity, I do try and take it. I miss far more than I hit, unfortunately. But, um, but if you did take a look at that Millennium stuff, I really appreciate it. Uh, that's a, uh, that's one of my, you know, like I said, an evergreen post. It's something that I'm constantly updating whenever I find more information to, uh, to stick in there. So, thank you for that. Uh, Damien continues... You're right that hearing people's origin stories is fascinating. We've already established that coming into the X-Men at different points really affects how we view the characters and what we're willing to accept in the stories. One of the best things about comics podcasting is that it's autobiography. Even the most basic index shows reveals how we consume comics. It's amazing that thousands of people all over the world read these issues and we all get something different from them. And yes, it's 100% true. Uh, Comics podcasting is autobiography, and it might, you know, for fans of comics and people who grew up with comics, it might be autobiography at its best, you know, considering the subject matter. Now, during my personal, you know, podcasting endeavor, I've learned so much about the different eras where folks have entered the fandom, you know, learned about what stuck out to them, learned about what made them stay. Um, And... It's it's wildly interesting because different people came in at different times, as it stands to reason. And some people chose to stay for reasons that other people may have chose to leave. It's it's a lot of fun to discuss those sort of things because I think you get to look at things from a different angle and a different perspective, and uh, and maybe you get a get a better or deeper appreciation for things you may not have uh, given a second thought to um, during an earlier episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths, I revealed some of my, um, some of my personal X-Men origin story, and it turned out that a guy that I've been talking to for years now, a fella named Jody Yurden, he's part of the From Claremont to Claremont, uh, group, he, uh, he discusses, uh, X-Men Volume 2 with me there, 
a good pal of mine, I didn't know that he and I had the very ver- very same first X book. You know, we we both picked up X Men Volume Two Number Thirteen <laughs> to enter into the fandom, and I mean, talk about a random issue to start with. It, it's just wild when you just learning about uh, about how everybody uh, got their start and uh, and our trajectories through the fandom, and and you know, thinking about that. That same story with uh, with me and Jody picking up the same book. It's like I'm thinking, you know, two little dudes in the comic shop, maybe on the same day, buying the same first X book. It's it's pretty cool to think about. But for you know, for me personally, this outlet is uh, is like a way for me to sort of keep an audio diary. Um, you know, back to Chris's on Infinite Earths. That's a more personal show. You know, I'll talk about. My life and times outside of comics That'll tangentially relate to comics, you know And I'll do that for, I mean, sometimes over an hour Well over an hour before actually moving into comics content Uh, You know, there's there's just so many things I think, I think as a fandom we, uh, We do stuff where Like, the way I usually put it is Comics have, you know, they've got, they've got cover dates, right? So we can almost at a glance be able to tell where we were when we bought a certain thing you know and you could think about you know for me personally it's like i can i can remember reading certain books and remember what was bubbling on the stove you know or remember what was on the tv in the background or remember what 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 song was playing on the radio while i'm reading a a, a certain book it's it's very fun to uh, to go back to those thoughts and to Kind of relive those memories and associate the reading of a comic or the experiencing of a comic with something going on in real life. Um, you know, I've told stories about, you know, falling in love with comics but being so scared that I was going to miss out because I didn't have the money to, uh, to, to afford everything I wanted. So taking odd jobs in the neighborhood and, and, you know, mowing lawns and cleaning out apartments and just doing anything I could just so I could get my comics and... So I've told stories like that. I've told stories where, you know, how, how uh, you know, a comic book. <laughs> I've I've told weird stories about having to lose weight, and, uh, and and how that associated with comics. And there's a lot of a lot of personal stuff on that. Chris's on Infinite Earths, uh, you know, uh, feed. I guess it's all the same feed, but playlist maybe. I don't know. And it's very cathartic. Uh, though, as I said before, it kind of feels like a mental and emotional shiatsu massage. Um, and also, one thing I never thought of as I was telling all these personal stories is that it kind of puts me at something of a disadvantage when I meet people, you know, or like folks who I may collaborate with who have listened to these episodes and, uh, like, we'll have our first voice-to-voice conversation or our first, you know, instant message chat on, on Twitter or something. And even though it's, like, our first time sort of meeting, they already know so much about me. So, like, they're able to reference points in my life, and I'm like, whoa, this is weird, because I can't do the same. Which isn't something I ever thought about before, you know, being... I don't want to say confronted with it, but before experiencing it. And that's... uh I don't know, it's, it's equal parts uh, really cool, and also it just goes to show that, you know, um, <laughs> per- things that are personal aren't, aren't so much when you, when you share them <laughs> in public. But uh, 
No, it's it's really cool. I love the the concept of podcast as autobiography. It's uh, it's just a, I don't know. It's my favorite part of the thing. I think. Uh, but back to Damien here. I'm really looking forward to you getting more fans on to talk about their ex origins. And yes, I agree. Me too. I, I'd love to get more people on to talk about their their lives and times as ex fans and uh, and also you know pick their brain about this you know pox pox docs run. I, that's uh, because it is so wildly different from what came before it. It's I think we're going to run into some. Um, some differing opinions on on how comfortable we are with this new direction. I've already heard from some folks who said they hate it, and uh, which I think puts them in the in the minority in in as far as being vocal about it. Uh, I don't know how evenly split liking or disliking House of X, Power of X, Dawn of X is, but I have heard from a few people who said, you know, it's not for them, and uh, I'd love to pick their brains and find out find out why because. Maybe I'll get a deeper appreciation for some things, or maybe there's things that I, even though I, I chew on the scenery and I get lost in symbolism that isn't even there, maybe I missed out on something personally, you know. But uh, yes, I'm definitely looking forward to chatting up more people and uh, finding out what makes them tick as X-Fans. Uh, back to Damien, he says, On to Marauders, I love this book so much. The best thing is the pacing. We're never on part two or six, uh, two of six. Rather, every issue advances the overall plot, but it's also a complete story. It was great to return to the Zhao plot, but for it to be a beat within a larger story. In many ways, it says something damning about modern comics that I'm impressed by a storyline getting the number of pages it needs. You're also right to notice how right the dialogue feels. Kitty and Bishop are furthering the plot while remaining in character. And, and yes, it's true. Uh, this, felt, this felt like a throwback in a good way. And I, and I think I mentioned this uh, during Marauders number one when we discussed it uh, back a few weeks ago. I mean, this uh, Zhao subplot was something that was, you know, left to bubble a little bit. You know, it was established in issue one. It got a mention in issue two, skipped issue three, and here it is paid off in issue four. It's uh, I, I guess a way to look at it, or the way I would look at it, is like it's kind of an accelerated Claremont subplot, you know, like a payoff of a Claremont story. But uh, you know, so much better than what we're usually getting this side of the year 2000 insofar as decompression and uh, being kind of being um, condescended to in that we can only handle one story at a time. You know, I feel like with eyes on the bookstore market, um, Marvel and DC are looking for a different sort of readership that is... Uh, while it has many similarities with uh, the serial readers, the month-to-month, uh, you know, single-issue readers, they're also very different in that they buy something at a bookstore, they get a complete story, and that's all they really need, you know. So it's a, uh, it's refreshing to see this. Um, also refreshing, Kitty and Bishop's relationship. Uh, surprisingly good, given that I really can't remember them ever really pairing off before. Um, and I'm sure they have a time or two. I know they were both on the Claremont Extreme team, um, in the early 2000s. Uh, but this just felt new, it felt novel, and like you said, it felt just plain right. Um, back to Damien, he says, I also love the detail that Bishop becomes Kitty's Red Bishop, at least partly to keep an eye on Hellfire. It makes sense for them to be suspicious of both Emma and Shaw. And yes, it makes total sense. Total sense. And it opens us up to plenty more story opportunities. I mean, here, 
we get to keep Bishop in character, right? Because he's been saying, you know, no thank you, I don't want to do this. He's been against it. And to, to just have him come around to the idea of joining would have felt wrong. But he's doing it because there is an ulterior motive here. It keeps him in character, it keeps him sticking to his guns, but realizing that, uh, you know, that there is a bigger prize out there in in his being in the circle, you know? I mean, we have questions like, what happens if and when Hellfire finds out that Kitty's Red Bishop is feeding information back to Beast and the X-Men, right? Will Bishop ever wind up getting in over his head here? Will he ever be put in a situation where he might have to, like, actually sell Kitty out? Uh, A lot of fun paths that this can take, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to, to following along and seeing where this goes. It's... I don't know that I've enjoyed the Bishop character quite as much as this in, in a very long time. And uh, I think him as the as the straight man to Kitty kind of being wild and crazy might be a, might be a fun, fun little uh, diversion for us. But thank you so much for writing in, Damien. Uh, always appreciate it. Always look forward to it. Uh, next, we have a tweet by our friend Jason C., and this is regarding um, Excalibur number four, where I said that I got a little bit confused, or a lot of bit confused, about, uh, you know, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say these things as an American. Uh, you know, what what is England? What is Great Britain? What is the UK? I don't know what any of them means. So he sent me a helpful, helpful in quotes, uh, Venn diagram to help clear it up. Um, and boy, it is... Uh, it's clear as mud. Um, I <laughs> I'm looking at it right now, and it's got a big circle that says British Isles, right? Then we have another circle within it that has British Islands, and that includes Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, the Isle of Man, Guernsey, and Jersey, and uh, it also includes the subheadings of United Kingdom and Great Britain. Inside the United Kingdom bubble is Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, right? Um, (laughs) Ireland has, it it crosses over and like Northern Ireland is like the only thing that connects into, into all three. It's, it's so bizarre. Um, Yeah, I I don't know what any of it means. (laughs) I'm, you know, I can be very dense. Um. But yeah, I don't know what's what here. Um, we will have, we're gonna have a mention of uh, of the UK, England, Great Britain, um, you know, brain kerfuffle that I have here in a later missive from Damien that we'll cover in a couple of episodes that I'm I'm looking forward to uh, having some fun with. But uh, yes, yeah, so thank you, Jason. <laughs> um, me, Richter, and Jubilee are all just as confused, but. Uh, Last but not least, we have a message from Ed Moore, and this is about New Mutants number four, and this is answering a question I had, and another just something that should have been obvious. I mentioned uh, that I couldn't figure out what DOX, Docs, stood for when we were talking about the magazine or the website that that revealed that, you know, Beak and Angel and the Bohusk mutant children are hanging out in Pilger, Nebraska. And, you know, of course, D-O-X can stand for Dawn of X, but D-O-X also is a, uh, a common thing on the internet now that I can't believe I forgot about. 
Ed sent us the definition here, docs, to search for and publish private or identifying information about a particular individual on the internet, typically with malicious intent. So doxing, I can't believe I forgot that. Um, <laughs> I feel like an idiot because, I mean, in you know this you know this day and age, that's something we've heard of. That's something that we hear about people being doxed, and uh, and that's exactly what they did to the Bohusks. You know, they they revealed that they were there in Pilger and, and got the cartels on their case. So very interesting. I can't believe I didn't realize it. I can't believe I uh, I overthought it is the thing, and that's something I do a lot. I was looking for a deeper meaning when hey, you know. Doxing is doxing, so it's it's right there and plain in front of my face. So, thank you uh, for uh, for including that, Ed. I, I really appreciate that. And uh, you're going to be hearing more of Ed's voice on this here channel uh, coming up uh, as we kick off the new fall season. So that uh, that's something to look forward to. But uh, thanks everyone for writing in. Thanks everyone for uh, for hanging out. If you need to, like I said it again. If you want to get a hold of me, because nobody ever needs to get a hold of me. If you want to get a hold of me, you could do so at uh, Ace Comics on Twitter or Weird Comics History at gmail.com. You can find show notes and stuff at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. We've got xlaps.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You got uh, 90s X Men on Facebook. Got the Tumble page. You got all that stuff. You got the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And uh, I think that's where we'll leave it today. So, uh, one last huge thank you to everyone for uh, sharing your time and sharing your ears. It really means a lot to this cynical soul um it does it does my soul good so thank you thank you all and until next time when we discuss everybody's favorite fallen angels number four i will talk to you again real soon see ya How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 40 of X-Lapsed. We've made it 40 whole episodes. How about that? I'm a little less raspy today, uh, drinking a, uh, a pure LaCroix. Pure is, a, is a, the, I guess, the pretentious way of saying, you know, flavorless. It's plain, regular. 
But uh, that's what I'm drinking right now. So hopefully that'll uh, that'll help us get through the next uh, half hour or so, right? Uh, today we're going to be taking a look at X Force Volume Six, Number Five. This had a March 2020 cover date. Stories called Necessary Force, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Joshua Cassara, colors by Dean White and Rachel Rosenberg, letters VCs Joe Caramagna, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Robinson White Sabolski, cover price $3.99, went on sale January 8th of this very year, 2020. Now we pick up, well, we pick up right where we left off last issue, uh, on the other side of that shutdown Krakoan portal. And it's here that we rejoin the top half of Wolverine and uh, Quentin Quire's severed head. The grunts, I'm assuming they're with Xeno, maybe. Maybe we'll find out a little bit more as we go. But these grunts comment that Wolverine looks like he's still alive. And somehow not knowing anything about Wolverine nor his mutant healing ability, they simply assume he'll be dead soon enough and decide to leave him to die. Do they, do they really not know who Wolverine is? I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, I get that they sort of have to leave him to live for the rest of the story to actually play out, but this is like brain-dead dumb here, isn't it? I mean, just just, just waste him. It, it's it's only half of him, and he's, he's out cold. Uh, now we hop back to the other side of that busted portal, where we rejoin the bottom half of Wolverine, the shoulders-down parts of Quentin, and a whole domino. Now the latter is trying to keep contact with her partners. Well, Wolverine, anyway. I'm not sure she could... You know, give a rat's ass about Choir. Uh, she says she'll do whatever she can to save him. Again, this is to Wolverine, not Choir. Uh, after all, Wolverine saved her in Korea a couple issues back. So fair is fair. One good turn deserves another. Let's hop into the roll call. Forge, Sage, Beast, Domino, Gateway, Wolverine, Marvel Girl. Uh, poor Quentin Choir's head doesn't even get a, ca- a little box here, which... I'm a little bit surprised, because that seems like an easy, low-hanging fruit sort of joke to make, which is kind of what these Dawn of X books have been doing. From here, we go to credits, then back to comics, and back to Krakoa. We're at the point with Sage and Beast, and they're chatting up Domino. They're trying to deduce the most expedient way of getting her to the San Francisco Pharmax lab. Now, the closest usable portal would drop her about ten miles away. Makes me wonder if maybe there's a Krakoan portal in every Walmart parking lot or something. You know, it's a a good place to put them. Unfortunately, that's not close enough. And so, Sage suggests that maybe they try and get a hold of Gateway. And uh, it feels like we're seeing him an awful lot, which... I don't know. I feel like that's kind of weird, considering that Krakoa more or less makes his mutant ability redundant. But we're seeing him... We're seeing him an awful lot. So... We head to whatever mountain gateway is, uh, is meditating atop, and he is soon joined by a floral and veg horror that is Black Tom Cassidy, who spends an entire page trying to get the little guy's attention. He finally does, with some pretty threatening words, and now we're in business. From here we go to an info page. It's eight bloated paragraphs about Black Tom's uncertainty. Nope. Sorry, don't care enough. Not gonna do it. Back to Domino, and she's still talking to Wolverine while dragging his lower half along with her. Whether he has the foggiest idea she's actually talking to him, we don't know. Now, she mentions to uh, perhaps nobody except us that her mutant luck powers feel like they're fading. She compares it to like a uh, a rabbit's foot with all the hair rubbed off, which is kind of gross, but what are you going to do? She's then joined by Forge, who's decked out in a gross organic mech-like suit of armor. 
He informs Domino that he's going to join her on the recon mission, and he still comes across as rather the chucklehead. We jump back to San Francisco when the grunts rifle through the lab. They're looking for some Cohen stuff to steal. While they stand around and talk, they suddenly find themselves under attack by the top half of Wolverine. Duh. Wolverine kills at least one of them, impaling them on his claws. And then another uh, grunt here lets loose with their rifle, which perforates Wolverine pretty good. They don't have any time to celebrate, however, as the cavalry has arrived. And of course, the cavalry is Domino, Forge, and Wolverine's bottom half. Back to the point, uh, Beast discovers that these guys never got around to severing the surveillance feed. Who trained these guys? I I mean... First they leave Wolverine to heal up, and then they leave the cameras rolling. Uh, The point here, and and yeah, we we really gotta suspend our disbelief, Beast and Sage can now watch anything that's going on at the lab, which is very convenient for the story. Now, Beast is hopeful that Domino respects the law of the Quiet Council, you know, kill no man, even though X-Force is officially exempt from that rule. So there's that. He just hopes that that there are survivors so they can question them after the fact, and he tries to impress this upon Domino, but at the moment she's in too much of a rage to really make any assurances. Now, as Domino does her thing, Forge heads over to the top half of Wolverine and then scrunches the bottom half back onto him. So he's holding them together so he can heal and fuse and all that good stuff. We see a helicopter flying overhead, but then Gateway blips into the cockpit, stares at the pilot, blips out, and then the chopper goes down. I'm not sure exactly what we just saw here, but whatever. Back inside, Domino and Forge keep on keeping on. We're down to one grunt who gives himself up, you know, white flag and all that. He gives up, starts reading his, giving his name, his date of birth, all this stuff to, please spare me. Uh, Now Domino approaches and it looks like she's going to swiftly take this fool out, but Beast presses the importance of leaving at least one survivor for questioning, and so Domino spares the guy. From here, we pop over to the sunset cliffs of Krakoa, and it's later on. And uh, it's here that Wolverine and Domino do a little catching up, and we learn that Quentin Quire is, you know, he's dead, but he's cooking in the hatchery, so he'll be back soon enough. We wrap up in an undisclosed room in Krakoa, where Beast is in full-on interrogation mode. He tries getting some information out of the grunt, he does not get much. He just learns that mutants are now at the top of the food chain, and as such, they're going to be everybody's target. And yeah, that stands to reason. That's actually a really good explanation. You know, he's wondering why everybody's targeting mutants, and it's like, well, mutants are, you, you guys are the top now, so everyone's going to gun for you. It, it's nothing personal. It's just that you guys are number one, and everyone wants to be number one. So I like that as an explanation. Beast then calls Gene in to try to put the geek through some telepathic paces, and she really doesn't get all that much in the way of new information, just that the leader of Zeno has a peacock tattoo, and... Is this supposed to be a huge revelation? Like, like were we supposed to not think these grunts were somehow associated with Zeno? I don't know. Now that's where we end the story, but the issue goes on to include another info page about the group known as Merc. And I'm guessing that these grunts were part of this group called Merc. And it's all very boring, so I'm not going to even bother you with it. But that is the end of the issue, the end of X-Force number five here. Next, we're going to be talking about, thankfully, the penultimate issue of Fallen Angels. So if you're one of the handful of people who still tunes in for that day, well, we've got two more of them. 
before we do that, though, let's uh, let's talk about what we just read. Honestly, this wasn't bad, um, though. There were a lot of lucky leaps in logic in order to make the story work. And I mean, yeah, this is comics, of course. And we're, we're sort of used to that sort of thing happening. Um, it's just that... Uh, it's just kind of what makes these stories happen, right? But it's usually that the seams aren't quite as visible as they are right here. I mean, leaving Wolverine alive? There's zero excuse for that. If you let Wolverine live, you you sort of deserve anything that com- comes next, right? That's just that's just silliness. Also, not severing the surveillance feed. Are these Merc's first timers or what? This is like the most basic thing to do, unless of course they were advised not to. Though I couldn't imagine why that would be. Uh, I'm happy to report that there was only really one forced conversation in this, and even though it was forced, it wasn't half bad. And I'm referring to the uh, interrogation scene between Beast and Bill, the surviving Merc. And part of that goes into the fact that uh, Bill is worried about his dog. He's worried, you know, that nobody's going to feed his dog. Something's going to happen to his dog. And Beast kind of flips out that this killer cares more about his dog than, you know, actual people. And I feel like this taps into, like, some very basic feelings in people. Um... I think a lot of us have similar reactions when comparing pets to people. There may be something like hardwired into many of us that we become like more apt to be outraged seeing a dog mistreated than a human. I, I think this was an interesting aside to their conversation. Uh, though Beast's anger here, it doesn't feel quite right. It feels like he's playing a part rather than you know, being intrinsically angry, which very well might be. I mean, he's a smart dude. He knows how to how to put on, you know, put on airs for people and to get a to get what he wants. Um, but yeah, this it felt very much like Beast was playing a role, and I'm not sure with as heavy-handed and as forced as a lot of this dialogue has been throughout our X-Force adventure to this point. I can't rightly say that he was put, you know, that he is putting on airs here. I think this is just him. Uh, now Quentin Quire, he is revealed as being dead. And uh, I wonder if this is his first ever death. It actually might be. Now let's talk a little bit about mutant deaths here, right? This is a new era we're in. We can all agree on that. It still bugs me how easily the X-Men can shrug off the death of their teammates. I mean, resurrection is the watchword here, right? But still... Let's think about it here. Does that change the fact that someone close to them just experienced death? I mean, uh, this isn't getting a splinter. Even though it's, you know, it's fixed just as quickly. I mean, you're dying. Quentin Quire is dead. He was killed. And he experienced death. And uh, here we have Domino and Wolverine. I mean, when he comes back, he's not going to know that he experienced death because he's he, they're going to use a, an older imprint, right? This isn't going to be a post-death imprint, so he's not going to know that he experienced it, but... The flippancy here, I mean, Domino and Wolverine are very, very flippant about it, and I don't like it. I really don't like it. Uh, what else happened here? Uh, Forge, he's still a chucklehead. Uh, feels very much out of character for him to be quite this, like, hokey-jokey. And um, him him having pet names for Wolverine, calling him Short Stack over... Come on. That's not... That's... Ugh. 
Overall, um, I, th- I think I can only hope that this Zeno and Merc story might be resolved in our upcoming sixth issue. That is the Marvel method, after all. Though, if I'm being honest, this doesn't this story doesn't feel quite ready to be done just yet. I guess we'll I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Um, I guess in closing out our thoughts or my thoughts on X Force number five, this was worlds better than last issue. But still. I'm not sure if it's something I'd continue reading if not for this show, because it's uh, it's off-putting. It's uh, and and a lot of that has to do with uh, it's it's both flippant and forced, and I and I don't like the tone. I don't like the tone, but uh, we will keep at it, and uh, we will get back to it before you know it. It feels like I blink and we're and we're back to uh, you know we're back to in the rotation again. So we'll see. But before I let you all go, let's hit the mailbag here. We got a trio of uh, correspondents to attend to here. We're going to start with Damien, and he's talking about Marauders number five. He says, There's something wonderful about rereading Marauders along with you and the way that your comments spark ideas in my head. You return to Kitty's drinking, which is a feature of the book that slightly annoys me. But as I was looking at the pages, I noticed that Kitty is drawn at the meeting with Shaw, slumped over drunkenly, but she isn't touching her glass of wine. Then she meets Emma at the Red Keep, pours a drink, sips it, and then pours it away. I wonder if they're trying to imply that Kitty is trying to act like a drunk to fit into the pirate stereotype, but is actually sober. I'd really not noticed those details until I looked at it again in the light of what you said. It's weird that I've read and reread every issue of Marauders, and I never noticed that. And I tell you what, that's something that I never noticed either. Um, I, th- I very much think you're on to something here. And uh, from this point on, I will be sure to be a lot more vigilant when it comes to, you know, seeing just how much of Kitty's drink is getting drunk. That's, uh, if, if that is the case, then I take it all back. <laughs> because that is, uh, that's some very, very uh, good attention to detail, which clearly I don't have. But, uh. No, that is that's really cool. I, I hope that uh, that I notice more of that as we go along, and we can we can start paying paying more mind to that to to see that Kitty might be she might be living up to a uh, a stereotype. So that that's that's very very cool. Uh, Damien continues. It's interesting to hear you question how people reacted to Iceman coming out. Like you, I had given up on Bendis' X-Men, but I picked up issue 600 of Uncanny solely for the Paul Smith variant cover of Callisto and the Morlocks. This means I read the scene where young Bobby asked older Bobby why he was lying to himself. And I know I have Uncanny 600, I just don't think I ever read it, so maybe one of these days I will to see how that played out. Um, But I had had gone from reading mode to just buying mode at that point. So I was just buying things to keep my completionist status, uh, you know, my my X, X-Men zombie card, you know, punched and up to date. But uh, I was not enjoying it, so I was not reading it. So maybe one of these days. Uh, Damien continues. I am gay, and as a kid, my favorite comic was X-Factor, and the characters I most identified with were Iceman and Richter. Both of them felt to me, felt like me, so it's weird to me that both were later revealed as gay. That, this doesn't mean I love everything that's been done with Iceman since. At times, I think there's been a tendency to make gayness Bobby's only character trait. He's been, he has to be throwing himself at every man he sees. I quite like the way his sexuality has been dealt with in Marauders. I like the fact that he is putting his responsibility to Kitty and his found family above his romantic life. 
Turning down Christian for Kitty feels authentic and a step up from the boy-crazy characterization of recent years. And this is interesting. A couple of points. Um, It reminds me of uh, my time that I romanticized so much. My time on Usenet back in the mid-1990s. You know, dialing up on AOL and finding my way to rack... Arts, Marvel, X-Books, whatever the hell it was But uh, I spent many, many hours there And I remember a lot of X-Fans of the day They would talk about characters that they thought were were gay Um, And Bobby and Richter, also Shatterstar, would always come up I mean, and all three of them have been revealed later on So when these changes were made, I was initially kind of annoyed I I felt like the creators were pandering Um, I feel like... uh, the writers we started getting after the turn of the century were, they were online. You know, they were online people. They were fans just like me who would be on the message boards. And I felt like the creators were pandering. And rather than creating new characters, which is just something you don't do anymore, uh, they were going to go against established continuity to collect, you know, political clout. And it's here that I'm reading your message, Damien, and I'm starting to see this... uh, I I have been seeing this differently, but this is really driving the point home here. Um, If readers and fans of the X-Men most identified with certain characters for certain reasons, it might stand to reason that these changes are a bit more organic than I originally thought. You know, I believe very much in representation and identification. I mean, at the very basic level here, I identified with Cyclops because... He and I both have dark hair and wear glasses, so I totally get that. But uh, but uh, that's very very interesting, and uh, and those were the names that always came up, and and here we are, uh, you know, a quarter century later, and this is all you know come to pass, right? Um, now I'm also very very happy that you mentioned Bobby being boy crazy up to this point. Mostly because I didn't feel comfortable broaching the subject myself. Um, This felt very, very forced to me, and kind of out of nowhere. If I didn't know any better, I would have guessed it was parody. Um, It just didn't feel... It felt like such an overcorrection, um, and so artificial to me, uh, that it, it almost felt like it was doing a disservice... To, to the people it was trying to represent I did not care for for that And you're, you're 100% right His, uh, The way they're treating him in Marauders Is is a whole lot better Is so much, is worlds better Than uh, than seeing him In some earlier works uh, Back to Damien He says One of the best elements of this book Is the use of X-Men history Kitty and Emma All the upstarts references The fact that Storm doesn't need powers The web of friendship between the characters Etc All these little details help to enrich the story and feel like little presents to us long-term readers. It genuinely feels like they're valuing valuing us older readers. I don't know why more comics don't value their history. We're in the era of everything being on Marvel Unlimited, so it's not like you lose the new guys as they can explore the old stuff in a way I never could back in 1986. And yes, your mouth to God's ears, right? Uh, Marvel... And DC, I feel like so much of the new breed of creators, they view continuity as a prison rather than an opportunity. Um, and most of them, most of them aren't talented enough to use it the way it should be used, um, because continuity is is a goldmine. Uh, there's just so much there to play with if you have the talent, ability, and uh, 
and I guess just the the willingness to play a ball where it lie, right? I also feel like this side of the year 2000, many comic fans think that they're too cool for continuity, um, which, I mean, that's another thing altogether. I really wish more books were like Marauders in that they actually see the value in the stories that have already been established. It's sadly quite the rarity, you know? It's, it's you know, <laughs> we're in the, uh, the era of revamp, reboot, relaunch, and... Not much else. So when we get something like Marauders, it is uh, it's something that you know we got to hold on to, right? Um, Damien continues here. It's also interesting to hear your philosophy of reviews. I must say I'm not a fan of scoring comics. It's so arbitrary that it can never truly mean anything. I tend to ignore scores when I read a review, as I'm trying as I'm really trying to find out what they liked and disliked about a book, which will give me more useful information than any score. It's possible to identify something I like from a negative review and something I'll hate from a positive one. I think I'm loving X-Lapse so much because your style is not just say what you think, but to dig into why you like or dislike it. And I really appreciate that. Um, and uh, yes, me me and reviews. The, <laughs> the, the uh, reviewer hive mind. Um, I, I, I have such a problem with, uh, with reviews, especially the numbered ones. Um... I feel like if you're going to set out to review something, you need to do it honestly, and you need to explain why. I mean, it's easy for any knucklehead to poo-poo any book, especially if it goes along with the prevailing hive mind mentality. It's much harder to poo-poo a book and actually explain why you're doing it. I mean, we've all seen Rob Liefeld books, and it's like, der her, he can't draw feet, so therefore this book sucks. It's like, what, 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 did you read it? <laughs> did you actually flip through it? Did you? Could you tell me why? Besides the fact that Durher he can't draw feet, help me. You know, uh, because when I look at a Rob Liefeld book, I see popcorn comics, and sometimes you need popcorn comics, right? Sometimes that's just what the doctor ordered. Uh, now, I, like, let's look at this very episode here. I said I liked the book, but I pointed out reasons why I did things that I didn't like. If I wanted this episode to get a bit more play and a bit more, you know, circulation in the uh, community, I'd shout from the rooftops that despite all my complaints, it's still a 10 out of 10. I'd make sure Ben Percy finds out. It's not like he'll listen to the show and hear my complaints because a 10 out of 10 is all the pros are looking for anymore. And this is the monster that low effort reviewers have created. This is 100% on the reviewers. We've told people they're perfect, and uh, when they hear otherwise, they question why. It shouldn't be that way, but unfortunately it is. Uh, Damien wraps up with, I can't wait for you to get to the next issue of Marauders. It hit me like an anvil. And I'm always looking forward to Marauders, but now I'm looking forward to it even more. So we will get to that in a few episodes. But, uh, but thank you so much for writing in here. I definitely value your uh, your thoughts on um, on Iceman um, because I don't know. I was very uncomfortable talking about it myself because I don't have any sort of frame or reference for it. But I definitely appreciate you uh, you chipping in there. Thank you. Uh, next, we have an email from Al Sedano, and he is still working his way through Hoxpox here, and he is up to the big shoe drop issue. This is House of X number five. He says, well, this was an interesting issue. It sounded to me like you didn't have as much of an issue with the resurrections as you thought you would. 
I know I enjoyed it more than some that have happened in the past, and I think I'd, I think it's because it's set up that it can only happen in a very specific way. There are plenty of ways it could go wrong, and that leaves plenty of story potential instead of just a blanket they can come back. Plus, they made gold balls important. How about that? Even if he never gets a speaking line, he's not a joke anymore. And yeah, I came around pretty quickly to the idea and didn't even mind the fact that Gold Balls was involved with it. Um, I mean, I feel like the concept is a sound one. Unfortunately, I mean, we are, you know, just about five issues into every single book here. And it it feels like we're, you know, we're kind of facing the law of diminishing returns. I think it's being, I mean, it's there to be exploited, but I feel like, I feel like it's happening a little bit too much. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what I expected because I mean, this is, this is what it is, right? So I don't know why I would expect them not to use it as often as they want to, but, uh, at the same time, I didn't think they'd be using it quite as much as they have been. Uh, Al continues, I think I was more okay with, than you with Storm in the role of high priestess. It kind of fits if you think of her background. She literally, she grew up literally worshipped as a goddess. And yeah, I get that, but, I mean, this kind of sounded like the rantings of an insane woman. It sounded very, very, um, it sounded very evangelical in a way. Just like very, yeah, very red-faced and sweaty. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Al continues, Of course, there is the question, is this a cult or is it going to be more the, the official religion of Krakoa, like the Church of England? I guess it depends on if everyone gets that excited all the time or just for resurrections. Though, that could be interesting if we do get some fanatics. And we will find out about some weird human cults as we enter Dawn of X. Um, but despite the fact that we are getting deaths and resurrections here, we're not, we're not really seeing much of this outside of uh, just a couple of times, right? Uh, we saw it in Hoxpox, of course. And I think we saw it again... When they brought back Shinobi Shaw in flashback But uh, I'm trying to think if we've had other You know, big storm doing the presentations I I can't think of one, I could be mistaken though Uh, Al continues Honestly, I was more weirded out by the fact that the team that was brought back Were all nude in front of everyone Wasn't there time to let them put on some pants first? And I think someone else mentioned this And my best guess then and now was... uh, that maybe this was a comparison to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were nude, but also without shame, so they like didn't even realize that they had anything to be ashamed of. I could be wrong, uh, but I, I feel like Hitman, Hickman is hitting us pretty hard with the religious allegory, so it might be something like that. Uh, Al continues, By the way, I was thinking the same thing about Catholic Mass that you were. It's been years since I've been to one, and I'm sure I still know all the lines and blocking. It's weird how that stuff sticks with you. Yeah, 100%. Those responses are, like, almost automatic, you know? <laughs> it's, uh, it, even in other languages, as I mentioned uh, before, I was at a, I was at a Spanish-language uh, mass, uh, wedding in mass, and, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, it's, like, such a automatic reaction. It's, it's pretty funny. Uh, Al continues, So the bodies they gave Proteus are all Xavier bodies. That's interesting. Wonder why they give him that body. Is it easier for Xavier to control him if necessary? And I think I made the guess, following the brief death of Professor X, that that Al doesn't know about yet, (laughs) that maybe they always have some spare Xavier bodies in the cooker, just in case. Because, you know, he is probably the most valuable guy there, so they gotta make sure he's 
always, you know, in play. And maybe as such, it's just more convenient to plop old Proteus into one of them if they've just got a bunch of them cooking anyway. That's just my headcanon, my own hot take. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Al continues, damn, I love Emma Frost, and I'm with you. She was uh, very well done. Um, she's been she's been great of late. Uh, back to Al, he says, when you started talking about political intrigue, the enemy of the state story from Priest Black Panther was the first thing I thought of, too. If they want to do a book about that, they should get him to write it. I'd buy that monthly. And yes, Priest is the probably the perfect guy to write something like that. Uh, he was never too heavy-handed, and he didn't resort to strawmanning the way so many other comics writers probably would and do. I remember really enjoying that story, and I mean, hell, that whole volume of Black Panther was a treat, and uh, probably one that we fans didn't even deserve. <laughs> we were we were luckier than we than we really deserved to be when we had when we got that book. Uh, back to Ali says. So now the evil mutants have joined. Wow, like you said, hopefully it won't be just mutants versus heroes, but I'm sure there'll be some of that. I'm positive we'll get mutants versus humans, that's a given. I'm wondering if we will get some stories about dissenters. In every society, there are some who disagree or even hate it. Will that happen here? What if some of them are former X-Men? It's one thing to be a revolutionary, but not all of them can transition to be a productive member after they win. And we've seen we've seen folks choose not to come to Krakoa. I mean, we see that in uh, New Mutants right now with Beak. Uh, Professor X visited Namor, and Namor turned him down. So we've seen people choose not to go to Krakoa. But I don't think we've seen anything like a dissenter just yet. Um, like someone who will, like, revolt. Someone who will fight the power, you know? That does pose itself as a very interesting story somewhere down the line. I... I I'm trying to think of who that might be, and uh, I mean, I think I feel like we've seen so many people, so I don't know who we haven't seen just yet. But uh, I think that could be very interesting. That could be something worth digging into. I mean, we already know that Quanon doesn't want to be there, and she doesn't really doesn't really feel at home there. Maybe maybe she'll do something. If <laughs> it would be the first time she did something interesting, so there's that. Uh, now Al wraps up with one last thing. You were responding to feedback about the limits of telepathy. From what I remember, neither Xavier or Jean was able to normally push their minds past Earth. The only time I remember Jean doing it was when she was Phoenix, and while Xavier did connect to Lalandra before they met, that was only a vague, li- vague dreamlike image. And yeah, that was my bad. Um, I could have sworn I'd seen them communicate, even through space, but I suppose I'm wrong. I... I, I guess I just uh, overestimated his powers. <laughs> so uh, Al, cl- Al closes out with, Sorry this was so long. There was just a lot in this issue. Until next time. And never apologize about the length. I, I love reading long messages here. I love uh, I love getting all the details and uh, comparing notes and stuff. So that's that's very, very cool. So thank you for uh, for keeping on with me here and, uh, and writing on in. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a letter from Jody Yarden. Now, he is a uh, one of the co-hosts on From Claremont to Claremont and a really good pal of mine. And uh, he's the guy who bought X-Men Volume 2, number 13, as his first book, just like I did. And he sent me an email that was called The Hottest Take, and it's about New Mutants number 5. He says, Brother Sheehan, I have to be honest, I'm not sure if it's my affinity for Wolverine and the X-Men, my lack thereof for some of the classic New Mutants Generation X lineup, or my absolute dislike of the Shi'ar, but I'm actually enjoying the farm portion of New Mutants way more than the space portion. In fact, if not for your show, I wouldn't have made it to issue two. 
keep plugging away. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Thank you. I, 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 I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> the farm. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm honestly very happy to hear another opinion on the subject. Um, more discussion is always a good thing. And, uh, you know, on that subject, I'll admit, I was a bit perturbed that our first arc was going to take place in Shi'ar space. But thankfully, uh, to me anyway, it's almost been rendered into background noise to the more character-driven bits that we're getting. As for the farm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to think about how... Like, how would I have received that story had it come after the Shi'ar arc wrapped up, right? Like, we have the Shi'ar deathbird babysitting mission all done and dusted, and then we go to an arc f- at the farm for three issues or whatever it's going to be. Maybe I would have enjoyed it more. Um, or maybe I would have just not have had such a severe reaction against it, because this felt like... It felt so disjointed. I mean, uh, we go from like a cliffhanger in in uh, issue two to just like a whole other thing in issue three. And then we keep with that for issue four. Then we go back to the other one for five. And we're going back to the other one for six. And and I guess we're going to come back to space for seven. Unless, unless the farm has a fourth part. But it's very, very strange. And I wonder if I'd have received it a little bit uh, better had it not been so uh, so disjointed, you know, just finish one story, then start another. Not this weird whatever it is here, but uh, but thank you so much for writing in and sharing your thoughts here. Um, I'm I, that this is the kind of stuff I want to hear. I I know that there are a few listeners out there who have reached out and said that they they hate the whole Hox Pox Docs thing, and I'd love to hear some of their thoughts on it. Um, because I'm not crazy about all of it. I like a lot of it. I dislike a lot of it, as I've, you know, as I've talked about over the thirty some odd hours I've been talking about it on the air so far. But uh, I'd love to hear uh, opinions, uh, agreeing, dissenting, whatever you want to call it. I, I love to hear uh, everybody's thoughts. But uh, if anyone out there is interested in sharing their thoughts, you can reach me at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com or Ace Comics on Twitter and or you can do both. Why not? Uh, you can find the show notes and the stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There is the Facebook page, 90s X-Men, a Tumblr page I haven't updated in a week and a half because I don't know how to use Tumblr. Um, also, the full audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. So lots of listening hours for your listening ears. And, uh, and uh, I... I don't want to say anything too firm yet, but uh, I think we're gonna have something something ex lapsedy coming out pretty soon. Not not exactly ex lapsed, but in the family that uh, might be interesting. Might it might trigger a knee jerk reaction in a lot of people, or it might uh, it might make people wonder if I lost whatever was left in my mind. So we'll see as we get there. But uh, it'll be a surprise when it happens. You know, somewhere down the line. Probably sooner than later. But uh, I think that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, One last giant thank you to everyone for listening and engaging and writing in and sharing and all that stuff that helps me do this without uh, feeling like I'm wasting my time. So thank you all so, so much. But until next time, when it's uh, everybody's favorite day, Fallen Angels Day, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 54 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I come to you slump-shouldered, humbled, and very annoyed at myself. Uh, now, if you listen to the uh, previous episode, uh, episode 53, I said that today we'd be discussing X-Force number 7. And that's because the uh, reading order list that I used in the back of the Dawn of X books did not include... X-Force number 6 And uh, that was all books that were cover dated March of 2020 And then uh, I didn't see X-Force number 6 I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't give it a second thought So then I jumped to the April 2020 cover dated books And X-Force number 7 was one of the first And so I mentioned this a couple episodes ago I spent several hours making a list And putting together album art for about 25 episodes Which... Oh man, that was tedious and annoying, and I was happy to have it out of the way. And then I uh, I went to my short box of Dawn of X books and pulled out the next issue of X-Force and saw Beast on the cover of it, and I was like, wait a minute, I don't remember manipulating a cover with Beast on it, because I spend, you know, a good 5-10 minutes with each cover as I'm, you know, manipulating it into the album art. And, uh... I was like, I would have remembered Beast, and no, no, I didn't. I didn't do it. So, so we're a number off for uh, ever <laughs> going forward. So I'm going to have to spend another couple of hours uh, fixing my goof up. And uh, I mean, you guys ain't gonna have to worry about it. It's uh, you guys wouldn't even notice it if I didn't mention it today, probably. But. I figure in the uh, interest of transparency and, uh, I don't know, just a, a human mistake, I guess. A human moment, I think they might call it. I haven't I haven't had very many of those, so... No, no, I'm kidding. But, uh, yeah, today we're going to be doing X-Force number 6. The next episode, we're going to do number 7. So we're going to do two X-Forces in a row, and then we'll just keep going here, and I will, uh, I will set aside another couple hours to fix... The album art for the next 20 or so episodes But uh, 
I was so annoyed with myself when I saw this, and I didn't want to go downstairs and confirm my suspicion that I did it wrong. But, uh, yeah, first thing this morning I saw it and was just like, oh, man. Anyway, let's get into it here. This is X-Force Volume 6, Number 6, had a March 2020 cover date. We're going back in time. Stories called Intelligence, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Steven Segovia. Colors are by Guru EFX. Letters, VCs Joe Caramagna. The head of X is Steel Hickman. Edits, Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99, and went on sale January 29th, 2020. We opened our roll call. And we've got Beast, Wolverine, Domino, Kid Omega, who's already back, Marvel Girl, Sage, Black Tom Cassidy, and Professor X. From here, double page spread of creds, then we open our story. And we open in a place called Terra Verde, where X-Force are just one click away from their next target. Now our Strike Force consists of Wolverine, Quentin, Domino, and Jean Grey. Sage is in the background doing a tracking thing like she does, and Beast is the one giving the orders from Krakoan Command. He tells them, or Sage tells them, not to leave behind any witnesses here. Because, of course, X-Force doesn't have to acknowledge that pesky kill-no-man rule. You know, just like seemingly every other X-Team right now. Now from here, we hop directly into our forced dialogue du jour. Now Beast compares what he's doing to conducting an orchestra. And we get to see visuals of each of our team members using their instruments. And uh, that, that's not a euphemism. Uh, during this, Hank compares them to the kind of music they would be, which is a little cringy. But for those interested, uh, Quentin Choir would be a shrill, brilliant violin. Domino would be a fun, emotive sax. Sage harmonizes in the background. Why even bother with her? Come on. Wolverine mindlessly beats drums and crashes cymbals. And Jean's a cello. There you go. Anywho, as we watch Hank watch, uh, X-Force is slicing and dicing some alien-looking creatures, and we'll find out more about them in just a little bit. From here, though, we go to an info page, and it's uh, the quick and dirty on Terra Verde. Well, I suppose it would be the quick and dirty if it didn't take up an entire page, but it actually gives us some very interesting information, so we're going to allow it, and we're actually going to dive deep into this page because this is some cool stuff. Now, we learn that Terra Verde was advancing the science of telefloronics, which, uh, I mean, we've all heard of, like, the nebulous use of nanotechnology in comics, right? Now, this is sort of like that, only biological and organic. Uh, now, this telefloronic dealy has similar healing effects as the Krakoan magic meds. But here's the thing, it could also be weaponized which I think is going to be the angle we're going to be exploring here. And I tell you what, there's a lot of meat on that bone, so let's do this. Now, the gist of what gets us to our next scene is that Terra Verde had initially refused to sign the Kirkoan Treaty. Then they even like threatened to sue the mutants for plagiarism, considering that their, uh, their nano-fluorites or whatever do very similar things. But at this point, they've changed their minds, and they will sign on. Now, we hop back to yesterday. Our opening scene was now. Now we're jumping back in time to get us there. Now, yesterday, the, tr the signing of that treaty was to take place. And we see Xavier on stage with uh, Terra Verde's president, Manuel Cocom. Now, Xavier has Tom Cassidy at his, uh, at his side, while the Prez has his son, Hadwin Cocom, helping him make peace with this decision. 
The press conference begins, but then a trio of reporters shapeshift into Martian Manhunters? Well, like a plant-like Martian Manhunter, I guess. Uh, you ever see it when, like, John Jones shapeshifts into, like, the creepier-looking version of himself? Like, not the, not like the round-headed one, but, like, the pointy one. He's got, like, scaly, sort of. He's sort of scaly and pointy. Now, that's what these reporters have transformed into. Black Tom throws himself in front of Charles to prevent a reoccurrence of what happened back in issue one. Now, the bad guys, Muerte Verde, they basically just threaten President Kokom and leave. Now, we follow Black Tom back to Krakoa, where he fills Beast and Sage in on his report. And they're both a bit incredulous that this encounter didn't end with any injury or fatality. Tom suggests that he proved to be too scary for him, which uh, is kind of adorable, I guess. Sage decides to get a better look at the replay and is immediately able to deduce that the Martian Manhunters weren't actually going after Xavier or the President, but instead had their designs on the Sun Hadwin. And it looks like they got him, even though I don't think we actually saw that bit happen. Now, later on, at the presidential estate, Hank McCoy pulls a little B&E. He peeks into the presidential suite and sees Manuel being attended to by a doctor. Now, the doctor, he's like, you've had a busy day, you should rest. And so when he, the doc, goes to leave the room, Beast punches him in the face. That, <laughs> I guess that's one way to do it. Uh, the president justifiably freaks the F out and rushes to an open window to make a leap for it. Unfortunately for him, however, Jean Grey just happens to be floating outside that window. Manuel begs them to leave, knowing that the Muertes will kill his son if they find out that they're talking. Jean decides to, you know, cut through the, the nonsense here and just read this fella's mind to figure out exactly what's going on here. Now, she learns, and then we learn, that the Muerte Verdes were a group of telefloronic scientists. Now, this goes back to what we learned on the info page, which, as I mentioned, is very interesting. These scientists infected themselves with the nanofluorites or whatever, and it's changed them. You know, clearly, it's changed them. Uh, Jean compares this to the development of an atomic-level weapon. B suggests that they strike the Muertes tonight, and instructs Jean to do a mind-sweep of the presidential home to make sure nobody, except the president himself, remembers that they're there, they were there. Beast wants old Manuel to realize that he'll always be in debt to the mutants for solving this problem. To which I say, how about we don't get ahead of ourselves, Henry? Uh, this, the, there are shoes getting ready to drop here. Next, another info page. This is something out of Professor X's journal where he writes about his resurrection and how it was sort of a good thing he died in the first place as it showed that while he was off the table, the Krakoans were able to realize that their existence didn't so much depend on him, but on themselves. Fair enough. So now, we finally get back to those opening pages of the book here. So we're in the now. Beast is conducting his orchestra of violence as they mow their way through the Muertes Verdes. Uh, Beast thinks to himself that these Muertes are the, organi are, are the organic equivalent to an Omega Sentinel, which... That's also very interesting. Now, he posits that they might wind up giving way to another version of what he calls an Omega Cycle, something that could potentially lead to the extinction of mutant kind. And I wonder if we're working under that sort of that post-human premise, like, you know, doomed futures and whatnot, um, which would make it a future that Mora hasn't yet encountered, if you know what I mean. We've seen the Nimrod future of X-squared and the post-human and phalanx future in X-cubed, 
But as far as I can remember, back in Hoxpox, we haven't seen like an organic norofluorite deal. Um, and I, I like this idea quite a bit. It's, it's very unexpected. You know, I wasn't expecting going to go into this issue and, and, and have this sort of a concept dropped on us. It's very good stuff. Now, Beast, he's cleaning his glasses and he congratulates himself for always being five steps ahead. Which is kind of like literary shorthand for uh, about to screw the pooch. Now, as X-Force continues pushing their way through, Beast reminds Jean about that whole leave no witnesses edict. And uh, Jean has a little bit of a problem with this, as you might imagine. And uh, even though they're facing off against, you know, twisted abominations who want to wipe their kind off the planet, Jean still doesn't want to kill anybody. Now, Beast compares these muertes to Omega Sentinels, and he suggests that they're more plant than human at this point. And, you know, justification is a hell of a drug. And so, Jean pretends she's hovering over a planet full of asparagus-headed aliens and does the thing. Henry thanks her. He tells her she did the right thing, to which she tells him to more or less kiss her ass. Uh, She actually does curse, which... I don't know if I want to see Jean Grey curse, but that's just me. Now, X-Force reaches a pyramid in the middle of Terra Verde. On top of it is Hadwin Kakom, who reveals... Duh, he was in on it all along. And so he transforms into a Martian Manhunter and gets his butt kicked so fast they don't even bother to show it on panel. We resume back on Krakoa where Hank has Hadwin tied to a table with Krakoan coils. He deduces that the kidnapping was staged in order to buy the telefloronic scientists a little bit more time. Now, had this been successful, Terra Verde would have become a world power. Not only would they have a complete competing medicine on the market with the Krakoan magic meds, these nanofluorites would provide a bonus in the ability to uh, weaponize your body. And uh, you figure mutant sovereignty would probably go straight out the window at this point. Now, Beast reveals that he destroyed the Muerte's lab, and he also had every last one of them burned to ash. Hank was uh, up front with uh, his fellow Krakoans, and he's like, hey, I really want to interrogate this Hadwin guy. And the interrogation process consists of a bio-study of his body and then snapping his neck. Hadwin is returned to his father, but is in more or less a vegetative state, no pun intended. Hank continues to narrate this scene, confirming that President Kokom now feels resentful of his own scientists and indebted to the mutants, just like he planned. Kokon uh, signs the Krakoan Treaty, just like Hank planned. The Terra Verdans get access to the magic meds, millions of lives are saved, and everything is right with the world. Now, as we close out the issue, we focus on Hadwin lying in his bed, when he begins to decompose, or melt, or something. He oozes into a putty, and proceeds to continue to ooze out a window. Outside, we see that this putty has taken a humanoid form and is casually walking away. Five steps ahead, Henry, huh? Maybe not so much. Next time out, we will discuss X-Force number seven. I mean it this time. We'll actually do it. But first, let's talk about this pretty out-of-nowhere spectacular issue. Um, Hot damn, I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Going into this... With the beast waxing on about being a symphonic conductor, I was, I was literally shaking my head. I, I was reading it in bed, thinking to myself, how many times can I talk about how forced this writing is without that itself becoming forced, right? 
like, I worry, like, are listeners going to think that I'm trying to make X-Forced a thing? Where I'm just going to nitpick this book a lot harder than I do the others just to keep up the gimmick? And, uh, yeah, these are things that I actually worry about. You know, then we get into the actual meat of the story, and from of all places, a friggin' info page. <laughs> we get, like, rock-solid, honest-to-goodness, interesting information about the Telefloronics. I mean, this was so unexpected. Here we are, X-Force number six. We're getting actual progression in an issue that isn't oversized, isn't overpriced, isn't overhyped, isn't part of a 25-part crossover event. It's just a wonderful little treat for those of us who still buy these things week to week and month to month. It's almost enough to sort of kind of bring the magic of the single issue back for me. Um, I go into so many of these books. And if, you're, if you've been listening for all 53 issues, you know, first, thank you. And, and second, you, you know that it's hard to get excited about these all the time. So I go into so many of these feeling as though we're going to get just like a lame duck chapter of a lame duck story. So here we are. We get a done in one, with, which actually brings with it ramifications and progression. And I'm sitting here dumbfounded. I almost don't know how to respond to it. I mean, like, like what year are we in? I, I don't even know. Are we still in current year? Is, uh, this doesn't feel like the, the amount of information we're getting here just doesn't feel like uh, that's the case. Now, I, I love the idea of the uh, nanofluorites, and I really appreciate that we're getting something new yet familiar for our team to contend with. Like I said during the synopsis, uh, Mora's futures don't show this, so it feels like perhaps for the first time we're actually like steering off the rails that Hoxpox put us on, right? Things might not necessarily be fated to be. I think we're, we were told that certain things are going to happen and... and Many of us were just sitting here waiting for those things to happen. We're, with this issue, it tells us that we're not just watching things play out the way they're supposed to. This is new, you know? And maybe maybe I'm over-romanticizing something that'll never come up again. But this issue left me with this like odd mixture of like dread and hope, which is pretty weird, right? I mean, I'm actually worried about what this new, potentially omega-level threat to mutant kind might actually pose. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it play out. And that is, of course, assuming that it does play out. Uh, just really, really like this concept, and uh, feels like a, like a cosmic curveball, which we don't get enough of. We really don't get enough of it. So what else? What else? Um, maybe it's just me, but I don't like seeing Jean Grey curse. And I promise, I'm, I'm really not a prude. I try not to curse on the air. Um, though if you talk to me casually, I'm from New York. It sort of just happens. Uh, cursing is part of my native tongue, I guess. So I'm not against cursing as a thing, but I don't know. It feels like Jean ought to be able to express herself without it. And yeah, this is a dumb sticking point, and it's not a hill worth dying on, but it did stand out to me as being a little bit much. I know they were probably trying to drive the point home that, you know, Jean was forced to do something she didn't want to do, but still, I don't know, I see her as being a little bit classier than that. Not that not that everyone who curses is unclassy, but, uh, I mean, I consider the source of that statement, but I don't know. Just don't see Jean doing it. Now let's talk about Beast. He's our point-of-view character here, and I think I've said it before here, he's one of my very favorite comics characters. Uh, you know, to... to further, you know, to press that. 
up up until uh, last week, I only owned two Funko Pops that were given to me by my wife. And uh, they were just of my favorite characters. Uh, one of them was the Hulk, who I love but unfortunately can't read anymore. And the other was Beast. And uh, Beast is my second favorite X-Man, right behind Cyclops, who, as it would just so happen, that my wife surprised me with a Cyclops pop a few days ago. It was one of the Marvel's 80th anniversary uh, figures with uh, the original 1963 costume. And the head on this Cyclops is gigantic, so it's very hard to keep him standing up. But uh, he is right behind me on the bookshelf, staring down at me. And uh, hopefully he'll he'll stay there. He won't fall down, because he has fallen down about three times already. So, all this to say, I love the Beast. Um, the Beast is... He's way, way up there. But I've hated the way he's been treated over the course of... I can't even remember the last time I liked Beast. Maybe Morrison's run. Um, it's been... He's been written very poorly. He's been treated bad. Um, and I feel like this issue might... And this is me, pie in the sky, Pollyanna here. Maybe it'll lead to something of a redemption arc for him. So long as they're not totally ham-fisted about it. I mean, Beast plotted this entire deal. It was precise and, as far as he knows, worked to a T. But we know better. We know that his five steps ahead actually put him like a step or two behind. Uh, When he learns this, assuming he does learn this... I think that might be an opportunity to re-examine and re-explore this character. Um, maybe make him a bit less of a pompous, semi-villainous prick. Maybe make him act a bit more like he used to. Uh, that is, of course, assuming a lot of things. Uh, first, that this Muertes Verdes nanofluoride deal is ever revisited. And second, that Ben Percy doesn't turn Beast into like an emo ninth grade creative writing student. <laughs> if this does happen. And I am thinking way too hard about this, and I'm I'm taking it five steps uh, in five steps ahead where we don't even have an inclination that there'll be a first. Uh, all this to say, I like having Beast as a point of view character, but I wasn't too happy with the way he behaved. Um, I don't like how quick he was to break what's his face Hadwin's neck. Uh, that seems like one of those things that'll be hard to walk back. You know, uh, he. He put a guy in a vegetative state to uh, to pull a fast one here. Of course, you know, he does sort of justify it in that, you know, the needs of the millions over the needs of the one. But uh, still, I, I, I don't know. It's a toughie to walk back. I feel like maybe one of my problems with this book, to, you know, in addition to the some somewhat ham-fisted writing style... Is that the bloodthirst in this story in this series is a little bit much? I feel like Marvel and Percy have this idea that this is what an X Force comic is supposed to feel like. Um, I mean, and that's despite the fact that many other writers have been able to write X Force stories that weren't so brutally and prolifically violent. I mean, X Force has been a thing for thirty years now. And not every issue is like this. It's actually only in recent years where X-Force is like this, because they're the ones who are going to do things the X-Men won't do. And uh, I don't know, there's a logic to that, but it's also one of those things where if you keep topping yourself in the violence department, then you're going to desensitize us to it. You know, because I feel like 
I feel like it's it's funny because I I looked at the scene where Beast had Hadwin's neck broken by the Krakoan coils, right? Had that happened ten years ago, it would have been like a shock. It would have been like a oh wow, you know that they they mean business here. We see it this time, and it's just like well, it's just another page in an X Force comic. You know, it's a violent book. It's what we come to expect. It sucks that Beast did it, but it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't make me stop and take pause. It just makes me realize, like, wow, this is where comics are right now, and I, I don't like that bit of it. Um, and that's not to say I didn't love this issue because I, I really did. But I, I guess that's just more a commentary on just uh, the envelope pushing in comics, right? Or envelope pushing. I never know how I say that word. Now, let's talk art. Uh, the art here from uh, Steven Segovia. Loved it. Thought it was awesome. I think the designs for the Muertes are a little bit iffy, but I definitely appreciated how much lighter this book looked under his pencils. Um, the colors were also a huge help in that regard as well. Uh, for the first time reading an X-Force book in the Dawn of X landscape here, it didn't feel like we were watching a movie happening on a submarine with all the lights out. Which, I mean, it, it's a dark book usually, right? It's fitting for the tone that this book usually goes for, but it isn't always that much of a joy to read, right? It's a little bit of a chore to try to make things out. So, just like Excalibur number 7, which we talked about last episode, X-Force is allowed to sort of go off on its own and just have an adventure. Sure, there are ties to the Dawn of X landscape, but for the most part, it's given a bit of free reign just to exist on its own, and it's all the better for it. I will say, I will be relieved when we get to stop visiting all the countries that chose not to sign the Krakoan Treaty. Uh, That wrinkle is starting to feel a little bit played out, but that's just a minor quibble. Because it did, after all, establish a setting and then facilitated an interesting concept coming to uh, the fore. Overall, X-Force number 6 was probably my favorite issue of X-Force from this volume, and I'm looking forward to more. Now, thankfully, since I goofed up the episode numbering, we won't have to wait long because, as mentioned, next episode we're hopping right into X-Force number 7. Fingers crossed it's just as good as this one, though it's uh, got Domino on the cover. Actually, Domino running away from Domino's, so maybe I shouldn't get my hopes up, but uh, hey, fingers crossed. We gotta be optimistic. And uh, that's pretty much everything I have to say about uh, this very unexpected good issue of X-Force. But before I let you go, let's dip into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien. And he's discussing giant size X-Men, Gene and Emma. He says, Being reminded of enough said month was a little painful. I didn't buy all the issues, but the ones I got, only new X-Men and Avengers were good. Or out of the ones I got, only new X-Men and Avengers were good. Fantastic Four was dull, and the rest were terrible. By far the worst was Uncanny X-Men, number 401, which I think would have been bad with dialogue and was bad and incomprehensible without it. And yeah, Nuff Said Month um, Nuff Said Month was one of those things that I had on the short list of things that we wanted to discuss on Weird Comics History because, I mean, it is a piece of Weird Comics History. And uh, it's one from a time that I don't think has become nostalgic yet, right? I think right now we're looking at I mean, Bronze Age will always be cool. People are always going to be nostalgic for that. Uh, Whether you were there or not for it, it doesn't really matter. But I think right now, like, uh, 
like the the nineties is what people are kind of nostalgic for. It's just kind of in the in the air, right? Um, people are waxing nostalgic about Wizard magazine and stuff at this point. So we're not quite to the turn of the century, and so that was one of the reasons I was I was really wanting to discuss Nuff Said Month on uh, on Weird Comics History because not everybody else is doing it. Actually, nobody's doing it, which is why we picked things to do. It's uh, we don't want to be just another voice in in the choir we wanted to you know do stuff ourselves you know that's why we did like you decide month yeah that we did that or you not you decide month but the you decide stunt um enough said was in that same list and uh and it was painful <laughs> as you mentioned here um i don't remember the avengers issue but i do remember it happening during the never ending war with kang which started out really strong to me, but then it just, like, never ended. I think it might still be going on. It was just so drawn out. Uh, New X-Men was good. It was good. Um, and just like we read with Giant Size, it was, you know, very similar in tone. I, I got all of them. I bought every single last one of them because I was a, a Marvel zombie at the time. and uh, Which meant I got a lot of terrible books. And... Uh, yeah, Uncanny is almost certainly at the bottom of that pile. Um, ugh, that was during the X-Core thing with a Banshee uh, organizing a group. I think, like, the Blob was on it. Mimic might have been on it. And he was basically running them like like the SS. And that was what the costumes originally looked like. I'd have to dig around the internet, but I remember there were images going around... And, uh, I think, I think this is when I discovered xfan.com. I think, I don't know if that's even still a thing anymore, but, uh, there was a website, I believe it was xfan.com. And, uh, and I remember seeing the original, the original images for Uncanny number 401 with Banshee in the, uh, in the very controversial uniform. And of course I'm an idiot and it went over my head. I'm, I'm very ignorant to things in real life. So it went over my head, and I was like, I, I don't get it, until, you know, I found out why it was such a bad thing to have happen, and I was like, oof, that's a bad thing to have happen. But, uh, <laughs> that was awful. Oh, that was so bad. Uh, and I always tell myself I'm gonna, like, do a full reread of Uncanny. I know I'll likely never have the time to do that, but, uh, if I were to, this would be an era that I'm like morbidly curious to revisit. I feel like uh, I feel like this is like a dead zone for a lot of people um, between Casey and Austin. <laughs> you know, I, I think like there was a lot of stuff here that didn't age too well, and a lot of stuff was and sucked even back then. But uh, it's one of those one of those runs, a rare run, uh, especially given uh, what my fandom used to look like. Where I only read these things once, uh, because leading up to this, I'd read things. I read, I read stuff over and over and over again, and uh, like the entire, God, like the entire first hundred issues of X Men Volume Two, I, I must have read all of those issues two or three times, four times maybe, you know, especially the early ones. And X Force read all of them over and over again. Uncanny from you know the Gold Team up till. Up till, you know, after Claremont left over and over again. And uh, these issues, the Joe Casey and the Chuck Austin ones, I read them once and put them away. <laughs> so I'm actually very, 
very interested if I were ever able to find an extra couple hours to uh, to work my way through these things. And uh, I'm also working very hard to try and uh, like try to stick like a like a like a crowbar, you know, like a like a figurative crowbar in between my hobbies. Like I'd love to read them and not have to discuss them on the air. You know, I would love to just be able to read them for my own curiosity and enjoyment where I don't repurpose them into something, into a product or a or into content. But that's something that I'm struggling with. So, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, back to Damien. He says, Morrison was wise to choose a dreamlike setting for that silent story and that was blessed with Frank Quitely as the artist. This retread works well but doesn't feel as urgent. Storm's injury comes out of nowhere. She gets hit with an energy blast back in the issue with the Children of the Vault, but there's no suggestion that she was injured between then and now. And yeah, totally. The injury was very strange, and when I first opened this issue up and just saw her lying there, discovered by those children, I thought she was dead. I just, like, oh, okay, Storm's dead. She's going to be put into an egg. She's going to come out of an egg now. I definitely didn't remember her getting hit by the Children of the, the Vault. Um... I was probably too busy chewing on the scenery to, to notice something that plainly happened on panel, which is something that I do. So, uh, yeah, I, this came out of com- completely out of left field for me. I didn't know when it happened, didn't know why it was happening, and didn't know what to expect moving forward. Uh, Damien continues, I was also surprised to see how the infection is dealt with. In later issues of Giant Size X-Men, Storm states that she doesn't want to give in to illness, but also that she doesn't want to kill herself and be reborn, and yet it's never mentioned in Marauders. In fact, I forgot she was meant to be ill because of an extended gap between issues of Giant Size and her acting as normal in Marauders. I'm sure the coordination could have been better. It totally could have, and it probably should have. I agree. Um, It's because of stories like this. I'm going to... I'm going to suggest that it's because of stories like this that there are all those contradictory reading order lists out there. Like, you can't find two reading order lists for Dawn of X that, that agree on much. I mean, if when I started doing this show, um, I had arranged the books in continu- you know, canon order, continuity reading order, you know, uh, what is sequential order, I suppose. Not, not in... One through sixes and whatever This was just, I was taking it off the internet You know, I had a list of, okay, this fits in here This fits in there And it was to the point where books that weren't even out yet Or weren't delivered to my house yet Came up early In the continuity Like, I think, like the first six issues of Wolverine All happen in between other issues of other books And I had only had the first three at that point, it's like, what? How? How am I going to do this? And uh, I probably would have been on a hiatus already had I uh, decided to go that route because it's it's weird, you know. I guess on the other hand, we would have gotten fallen angels out of the way in one go. But uh, hey, you take the good, you take the bad, right? Uh, Damien continues. You commented that some readers might feel conned by the price. I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but I buy all my comics digitally now. I have far too many comics, and I'm incapable of getting rid of them. My husband is convinced that one night, the pile of 40-odd short boxes in our corner of our bedroom will collapse and will be crushed to death in our sleep. In fact, the idea behind our podcast is that I'm trying to convince him that I love all my comics, and that's why I have to keep them all. That's why it's called Should I Love This Comic? I love the art on this book so much that after buying it digitally, I had to go out and get a paper copy as well. 
Yes, I was mad enough to pay the equivalent of $10 for a quick read. I think I might have a problem. And uh, it's funny. My my wife and I are the, the same way. My wife... I, I store my collection, which at this point is around 100 long boxes, as well as a closet with several, like, five-foot-tall stacks of loose books in our upstairs guest bedroom. I, my... I suppose it's not really a guest bedroom since there's no bed in there and no guest would ever want to sleep there. It's supposed to be our guest bedroom. Um, It's right above our garage, and she swears that it's going to come crashing down and destroy both of our cars. Um, Well, if if things happen the way we're hoping, we're going to be moving house in a few months, and uh, I'll have a more dedicated and safer area to keep my clutter. And uh, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it before, but for whatever reason, I, I can't do digital. Um, I just don't enjoy comics that way. I wish I could, because I'm sure I'd get a lot out of services like Marvel Unlimited, uh, assuming that I'd actually have time to use it. Uh, That was a big problem for me when I was reviewing current year comics, uh, because Marvel and DC would send out digital comps to reviewers, which, I don't know, I just had such a hard time getting into, and uh, I would always skew, because I I worked for sites that did the, the, the out of ten review score. You know, you scored the books, you graded it. And uh, I would always tick my score up a little higher because I was afraid that the medium, you know, or the delivery method, reading them digitally was affecting the way that I enjoyed them. So a story that I would have enjoyed had I been holding the book in my hands, maybe I enjoyed it a little bit less because I was reading it off a screen, if that makes any sense. I felt like I wasn't giving them a fair enough shake, I suppose. And, you know, funny, back in the long ago, well, not so long ago, I guess, I was a reviewer for uh, Dynamite Comics. Um, This was probably 2007 or so. And uh, they used to actually send me a box with the books physically a week before they hit the stores, which was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. Uh, But unfortunately, Dynamite was like 95% licensed books, which I really didn't care. I mean, it's like, I, I don't need to read three Three series of Battlestar Galactica. I just don't. <laughs> I really don't need that in my life. But uh, I did my job, you know. I got free stuff and I did a job, so that was that. Uh, Damien continues, Russell Dodderman and Matthew Wilson are an amazing art team. This is one of the best-run comics I've ever read. I'd not seen much of Russell's work, and I, as I haven't really followed Thor since the Falco Friends years, and I was I was blown away. You could tell he was good from the Marauders covers, but this was really a revelation. And yes, this was this was wonderful looking book here. Um, and I hadn't ever seen him before either. Uh, I didn't realize he was on the Marauders covers until I was doing a little bit of research on him. And uh, I, I think, actually, I, I don't think it was even research. I think it was just when I was uh, going through the you know the double page spread of creds here. I noticed Dodderman's name there, and uh, it only stood out to me because we were doing this giant size issue. I was like, oh, well, he's doing this other stuff too. Um, but I hadn't seen him other than that. Uh, I I can't do Thor. Thor is so boring. And uh, I don't do Marvel events anymore, so I skipped War of the Realms, which is, I guess, uh, was like his big coming out party. You know, that's where people started to really take notice of just how, how awesome a talent uh, Dodderman is. Uh, uh, I was going to call you Russell. You're not Russell. <laughs> Damien continues. By the way, there was an element of madness, madness, Paisley, but I was surprised you didn't note that the Paisley was made out of Storm's eyes repeated everywhere. I love the idea that Storm is watching. 
It was also great to see the callback to Storm and Jean cuddling during Inferno. Hickman also used the dialogue from that scene where Storm was announcing the resurrected Jean in Hoxpox. I like the idea of the head of X loving Inferno as it's my favorite X-Men era. And that's true. They were Storm's eyes. I I didn't even notice it until uh, looking back at it. <clears throat> and I also didn't immediately get the call back to Inferno, but went back and found it. I love it when they do stuff like that. Um, and it's funny. It's, it's, it's weird, actually. When I came into this X-Labs project, I was, like, all full of P&V, you know, ready to rant about how nobody writing comics nowadays cares about what came before. And here we are, more often than not, as it pertains to the X-Men, anyway, I'm finding the exact opposite to be true, which, uh, I mean, talk about a pleasant surprise. That's, that's really awesome stuff that, that they are embracing what came before. And... Just like I said, I didn't notice it immediately. I just thought it was a nice scene. But you noticed it immediately, and you got even more out of it. And then I went back, and now I appreciate it even more. So you don't need... It's like, it's ingenious, right? I mean, you don't need to know it. But if you do, it adds so much more. I think that's the way... That's the best way to handle continuity. Because not everything should hinge on it. But it should be there. You know, um, because it just adds a whole different element of appreciation to a scene where, you know, otherwise it might not have been. Uh, Now, uh, Damien wraps up. He says, overall, I was happy with this. I'm always prepared to have an issue here and there that exists more as an artist showcase than as an actual story. And I agree. I agree. Um, I I was happy with this. Uh, I loved the fact that it was a callback to, you know, one of my favorite eras in in, in the X continuity. In the Morrison run, um, but I definitely will have to admit that it it goes down a bit easier for me knowing that I only paid like two fifty or three dollars for it. <laughs> uh, you know, five bucks wouldn't have been a breaking point for me because I am a completionist and uh, and so I'm you know I've evolved past those things or or the rest of the world has evolved past me I suppose. But uh, it does go down a bit easier knowing that I didn't pay cover price for it. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts here, Damien. I I really, really appreciate it. And we're going to wrap up with a message from our friend Walt Neeland. Uh, He was uh, writing in to discuss episode 50. He said, I wanted to drop a quick note. I'm listening out of order to X-Lapse 50. Speaking for myself, I find that listening to you talk about whatever is great. The comic or topic at hand is just a vehicle for your authenticity. Shows like this, I often forget you're even intending to talk about a comic. And it's like, wait, what? No, no, more anecdotes. The comic will still be there later, however cheesy that sounds. And no, that doesn't sound cheesy at all, Walt. I very much appreciate hearing that because uh, despite the fact that so much of my work... uh, Work. It's not work. It's me talking into a microphone. So much of this, so much of this hobby has been... um, has been, you know, fueled by personal anecdotes and, and whatnot. Um, despite the fact that so much of it has, I still worry every time I, every time I, I don't know, indulge in that sort of thing. Um, I worry that it's not, it's not what people signed up for when they press play. You know, if you see that, oh, this this guy's talking about X Men Fantastic Four, and then you come in and it's me talking about. Absolutely anything else for a half hour. I, I just worry that people will be like, "Hey, what? what who, you know, who's this idiot think he is?" You know. <laughs> but uh, 
but no, it means uh, it means a whole lot to me. Uh, I mean, the reception to that episode has been um, it, it's been uh, it's it's been a surprise. It was very surprising. Uh, it's the first time I've sort of indulged in that sort of a uh, in that sort of content during this series, and uh, and I was worried because I. I Told myself I wouldn't do that I told myself that this was going to be A more material based program For uh for, As like a resource you know uh, For people to follow along And if they missed something in Dawn of X Or if they just wanted to hear you know, some guy's opinion about it Before they decided to, to buy an anthology book Or to buy a hardcover That's what it would be here for And of course I would give my thoughts And a little bit of my own history and point of view But never expected to or I told myself I wouldn't indulge in the personal anecdotes, but I'm happy that that so far everyone's really enjoyed it or appreciated it at least, or was just cool with it because uh, that was a that was a tough subject to discuss. I, I've discussed Reggie a lot, uh, but in different sort of uh, framed differently, I should say, framed in, in different ways. So this was the first time I discussed. Uh, the the effect on this hobby, you know, which was something I, I wanted to share for a long time. I just didn't know how to go about doing it. And um, when I started this episode, it was just like, you know what? let's let's do it because uh, I wanted to I wanted to provide context as to why why I considered this a milestone because i'm I'm not, you know, I, I I've talked about milestones uh, various places on 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 the blog, on other shows, and a milestone is one of those when you when you're creating content for the internet, a milestone can mean very different things. Um, I remember I did Action Comics Weekly every single day for about a year. It was eleven. It was ten or eleven months every single day. I did a story from Action Comics Weekly, so I called it Action Comics Daily, and and I, I mean, Walt knows this. A lot of people know this, and it was a project that uh, was very very special to me because I'd never seen it done before, and it was an era that it was one of those weird eras where I was uh, nostalgic for a time that I wasn't even a part of. You know, I was very very. Motivated to learn all I could about this era and then share it with everybody listening or reading, I suppose it was. And, um, you know, from I think it was February 1st of 2019 until um, November 30th of 2019, every single day was a story from Action Comics Weekly. And I remember finishing the last one and uh, had this like. Such a It was very bittersweet uh, I was so happy to have seen it through to the end But it felt like I lost something At the same time You know, I felt like I lost a friend <laughs> Because I could no longer rely on Action Comics Weekly But I remember hitting publish on that final piece And It was a milestone, you know And I sat there at my kitchen island Hit publish And nothing happened you know, uh, you're sitting there. You like you. I, you expect the dancing girls to come in and and uh, and confetti to fall from the ceiling, and no, it <laughs> doesn't happen. Um, so, like milestones, I've I've learned that milestones only really matter to the person making the content. And uh, so, 
I wanted to share why X-Lapsed episode 50 meant something to me and why it was a personal victory, an accomplishment that I wanted everyone to know why I felt that way. And uh, and I, I, I can't even put into words what it what what the reception's been. It's been it's been so nice. It's been so kind, um, and it really means a lot to me. It really does. Uh, so yes, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Walt, for uh, for your message here. It uh, it really put a smile on my face. I, I very very much appreciate it. Now, uh, if anybody else would like to put a smile on my face, uh, you can write to me at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts and that entire Action Comics Daily project over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can also go to xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com to find all the episodes of this program you're listening to right now in case you need to catch up or in case you missed something. Uh, also, the Facebook group, 90s X-Men, and the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, where you can find a whole bunch of stuff for your listening pleasure, or let's just hope it's listening pleasure. Uh, but I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Uh, I want to thank everyone so much for sharing your time with me. I very, very much appreciate it. And uh, until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.